Hello, everybody. It's episode 132, and Dr. Warren Booth's here. Let's go through the sponsor shout outs really quickly. Shane Kelly, Small Town Exotics. He has a bunch of snakes for sale. You need to go buy them, please. <laughs> Lots of little ball pythons. He had a sale, and I think he's going to run another sale whenever the auctions renew. Shane Kelly, Small Town Exotics. Check him out. He had those like red stripe Krypton things that are very cool. Bravo Zulu Ball Python. She'll be at the Midwest Reptile Show at the Indiana State Fairgrounds on this weekend, actually, the 25th. Please go there and say hi. Give her, buy some of her snakes so she can go buy more Dominican Red Mountain Boas. We love that. Thank you, Bravo Zulu Ball Pythons. Stone Age Ball Pythons. I still don't have an update from him, <laughs> Justin. I'm assuming he's still uh, happily keeping snakes. And living his best life. Stone Age Ball Pythons. Power Ball Pythons, Andrew. Um, lots of pairings going on. No eggs yet. He did have a, a okay auction. I think he bought more snakes than he sold. So hit up Andrew to buy some more snakes, please. Powerhouse Ball Pythons. <laughs> Great family snakes. They are doing the Huntsville, Alabama Repticon on February 24th and 25th. Please check them out if you're in the area. Lots of cool pairings this year. Um, we love that. They also need to buy more Sanzania. So buy some of their snakes so they can upgrade. Chris would be in a He'll be on tomorrow because we're doing a Pituophis party episode. I tried to get pictures of every Pituophis that has ever existed, basically. And I'm currently failing because some of them are such rare hypothetical subspecies. But we'll try to talk about all the kinds of pituophis in the whole hobby and which species are just locality only, which ones have morphs and uh, maybe we're going to make it fun. He will also be doing a show this weekend, February 24th at the new Hamburg show in Morgantown, Pennsylvania. All right. I did it. Warren, how are you? Wonderful. How are you? <laughs> I'm so bad at ad reads. Why do these people pay me any money at all? I know it's weird. I um, we haven't done that in the podcast that I'm involved with. We haven't uh, we haven't expanded out to the whole sponsor thing. It's too much work. I just want to get on and just talk junk for two hours. And me too. <laughs> and they all renewed, and I'm like, you don't have to renew. I was kind of being like passive aggressive about it, right? I was like, you don't have to. <laughs> That's the way to do it, because then they feel guilty at that point. Right, but I, I was being serious. Like, you know, it's tough at economic times. I don't know if I'm, like, driving value to their brand. I try hard. Like, I, I bring them on and be like, what's your projects or whatever, but I don't know. I don't know how to do anything on the internet. But they're all ball python breeders, right? So they're all making loads of money at the moment, right? They're not <laughs> running sales or auctions and... Like they're not losing money hand over fist, right? That is the hardest thing I have ever heard. <laughs> How happy are you to be out of ball pythons? I've never been happier. Oh my gosh! You know, I, I like I like them. I still like them, and I still think about getting one or two just as little pets. You know, I I've looked at the um, the patternless from Tracy Barker a whole bunch of years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I like tristripe. And, Me too. Uh, but and it's weird because tristripe don't seem to be getting the recognition that they. Really should. I think part of it, because whenever you cross it with anything, it kind of just ruins the whole pattern, unless it's something like Ultramel or something like that there. Mm -hmm. But um, but then when I think about those and think about getting one or two, 
I then realized that that's the stupidest thing to be thinking about. And I could rather just throw my money into the sky and walk away. So, right. Yeah. Do you think one day, I mean, I spent a lot of time like pontificating about what ball pythons could be. Like if ball pythons were less an, an investment species, people would like, I don't know, enjoy them and like breed, breed less of them. And so they'd be like more stable value. I think until people that have them think about them in, in, in a way that it's not an investment because realistically they're not for, for 90% of the people that have them, they're going to lose money or they'll just about break even. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a small proportion that will uh, make money. And the problem with a lot of it is you get 90% of the people following 1% of the breeders and following what they do. So, and they got to realize that those breeders are already several years ahead of them and producing a boatload of those. So you're right. And they've already that. made their money and moved on. Yeah, and then you're three the... years or four years right. after that. And it, you know, just look on morph market. It's kind of scary how much of, there's three or four key morphs that are all of a sudden, you know, there's everyone's got them because that's what the big breeders are doing. You know, if right. you want to try and do something in any field, try and try and kind of carve your own your own channel and your own path and get into into things that are a little bit more interesting. You know, that not everybody is all of your competitors have. Yeah, it's kind of it's because of like the the COVID babies and like me too. Like I'm I'm part of the problem, right? Like you're trying to like hyper optimize so you have a chance of selling them for more than they cost to make. <laughs> but then you all end up hyper optimizing the exact same way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's not. And then the other thing is that whenever it's just about adding genes to genes to genes, they all end up looking pretty crappy the more mm -hmm. genes you add to them. And and as a result, instead of producing like really the best of the best, you know, single or, you know, you know, two gene combinations then people try to put on five or six of these different genes and they end up having to get genetic testing to even determine what they are and it's because they're a powerhouse you know <laughs> i know it's so funny no, thanks. i mean we yeah, sort of no, has thanks. have the same problem in like morph boas like it could be an inca key west jungle hypo yeah. IMG, well, there's, not many, like... there's not a, there's not as many people doing that i don't think there's a handful right uh, right they're really doing that I think I don't want to say boa people are smarter, but we there's are. A, <laughs> there's at least an emphasis on like, you know, like I don't know some selective breeding. Like if it takes you that long to raise up the females, she might as well be the best version of mm -hmm. it possible. Yeah, not just yeah. any slop. You got it to show every time. Yeah, that's it. Because what you got to realize is that while we're looking at genes as being a single recessive gene, for example. There's also dozens of genes underlying that there that are also resulting in a lot of the pattern and color variation on mild levels, right? Mm -hmm. So really, ultimately, it's very polygenic in a sense of the overall look of the animal. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if you are just thinking, I'm going to buy a pastel or I'm going to buy whatever, you need to buy the best of the best that you can find and mm -hmm. breed only the best of the best. But a lot of people just, you know, they've got X amount of money and they want to buy as many things as they can. Mm -hmm. and think that they're going to make the best from them. And that's not necessarily the case, you know, not, yeah, sure. You can pop out great looking animals from very inferior looking animals, but it's more likely you're going to produce really good quality animals from really good quality animals. Right. And people will still, people still want the best of the best, you know, they will pay for them. Well, this, I guess, leads into the first topic. Like when se selective breeding for quality are we interested in introducing too much homozygosity for that line to be 
viable, really. Like, I always think about that. I'm like, yeah. I, but then, like, I don't know the inbreeding coefficient for my whatevers, corn snakes, yeah, that, or whatever. That's going to be a difficult thing, right? Realistically, when we think about inbreeding, we got to think about it in terms of natural populations, all right? Because mm -hmm. they're largely random breeding populations. There's multiple males and multiple females to compare over time and produce relatedness values that are closer to zero. So for those that don't, you know, think about relatedness values, full siblings are 0.5 because they share half their genetic material from the mother and half from their father. And ultimately that means that they, when they compare siblings to each other, they, they share about 50%. Mm -hmm. um, parent offsprings, 50%, um, full sibling, sorry, um, half siblings, 0.25, and you go from there. Um, highly inbred, you're going to skew that up to the other end, closer to one. So a parthenogen is going to be close to one, but not completely one. And highly unrelated is going to be close to zero, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is that with relatedness values among individuals, because we're not really breeding randomly, we're buying specific animals and pairing them continually, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're pairing siblings or half siblings, or, you know, whenever you get these new traits, then everything from it's going to be a half sibling or a, or a, you know, a, a full sib, you know, for a, a, a period of time, people don't really outbreed. They should outbreed because mm. the more inbreeding you get, the more the increased homozygosity you've got. Um, the greater the level of homozygosity, it can go two ways. So inbreeding is detrimental in some cases and beneficial in others because it can be beneficial because it can purge mildly deleterious alleles very rapidly. Mm -hmm. It can it can purge significantly deleterious alleles very rapidly because they're the offspring that, that are not going to survive. Right. But what it does do is that it also loses diversity. And when you lose diversity, you lose adaptive potential. Mm -hmm. And um, and sadly, you know, in the genetic studies that we've done relating to parthenogenesis, we're always already screening, um, you know, the mothers or, or potential fathers from of those. And there, mm -hmm. it, it, we've done ball pythons and reticulated pythons and boas and all that there. And they tend to have really low levels of heterozygosity. So there's been a lot of inbreeding over time. People don't choose to outbreed. You know, I've always said that the, the biggest mistake a lot of ball python breeders don't uh, make is that they don't take advantage of those really cheap imported female ball pythons. Mm -hmm. Because once you get your multi-gene animal that you want, outbreed it to wild stock and it introduce genetic diversity, then breed back from there. You know, and they, and they don't seem to take advantage of that. Because, but what we don't know really is to how many generations can we go before things going really bad with 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 reptiles some of them seem to do really well mm -hmm. boas on islands seem to do really well many island snakes do, and, and, and lizards do very well with inbreeding levels um but we just don't know in captivity we're seeing evidence you know like where you get you know kink tails and bulging eyeballs or eyeballs falling out or small eyeballs and stuff like that there um you know we don't know how much of that is associated with the trait or associated with inbreeding Right. Like, I'm assuming in the situation with island snakes, you have the founder effect, whatever mm -hmm. the deleterious alleles either weren't there to begin with or were bred out right away. Otherwise, they all would yeah. have died. Right? right. But when we're taking like a small number of animals from a mainland population, like Brisbane coastals or Taramaras, and we just have a pair or two pairs, mm -hmm. and that's all we have in captivity, are we headed for? Potentially. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because look at look at Ruskell pythons. What were they? They were founded from five animals ultimately. And uh, but there's no way of introducing diversity to that. I have Duns pythons. We can't really introduce much diversity to Duns pythons, right? Right. 
Um, it's something I like worry about all the time. Because people will come on here and be like, "Why aren't you an Australian species?" And I'm like, "If I was going to get a carpet, I would get a Papuan carpet python." Mm -hmm. this, yeah, because there's, there's at least imports coming in from that there. Yeah. For for yeah. now, right? And it might stop, but like, like I see a lot of cancer in carpet pythons, and that just might be yeah. a carpet python feature, but it mm -hmm. also could be an inbreeding depression step one. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, because we know that cancer is a heritable trait, mm -hmm. right? So it's um. Uh, we could certainly be selecting for individuals that have cancer or, or are predisposed to cancer. And remember that because an individual, a human or an animal has a gene that can predispose them to cancer doesn't mean they'll get cancer. Right. But it means that once the environmental triggers are there, then that can trigger cancerous growths. And, and you mm -hmm. could have lines where they appear normal and then all of a sudden you start seeing cancer in lineages. And that's because some environmental trigger changed and you're seeing that then uh, pop up. You know, for me, it's I, I try not to breed sibling to sibling mm -hmm. past one generation. After that, I'll, I'll, I'll outbreed. If I'm doing it to try and fix a trait, then I'll outbreed immediately afterwards. <laughs> um, but I don't continue to do this inbreeding to inbreeding, you know, sibling to sibling to sibling. Um, for some things, you just can't avoid it. Like Duns pythons, for example, will never, well, some wild caught come in here and there. But um, there's things that we can't avoid. So, you know, I, I look at it on a case by case basis. Um, if I can avoid it, then I do. Mm -hmm. I'm also unlikely to live long enough to get past the number of generations where I need to worry about it as well. But okay, so you you feel good about it? I don't it. feel terrible about it, but I, <laughs> I sometimes I feel terrible about it. Yeah. Some of these family well, trees yeah. are ladders, bro, and I'm like, right, uh, yeah, they're they're just sticks, right? They're not they don't even have branches, you and know. I'm like, I, what are we gonna do? Yeah, like part of ours are very cool, very cool, yeah. but we don't yeah. have very much. So like, no, but cockers or cockers or or West Lagoon K, they're all the same. They're coming from such a small finding population, and at some point in time, because we've got, I've got West Lagoon K and crawl K and cockers K and all those kind of ones from the original people that collected them. So I've got the original line. Um, and I'll sequence those to see how much diversity is within those natural kind mm -hmm. of populations. It's probably going to be very little. And the thing is that, you know, right, some people would say, well, they're all boa imperator, very mm -hmm. likely, you know, so we just outbreed them and then breed back. But then you're losing that local adapted traits that makes them what they are. So, you know, I one right. thing I just don't breed I, them too often and don't, well, there's not much you can do. It is what it is. <laughs> Call out but, the ones that are looking really terrible. Right. Okay. Right. Don't sell them. But the ones that have got the, the third eyeball or the no eyeball or the legs instead of a tail, you know, feed that to your king snake. Yeah, you please know? do for that stuff. Yeah. So you don't think, I don't know, like if we did a like a 50% outcross and bred back and like technically we could find ones that are like genes that downregulate IGF-1, we could get size controlled or whatever, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we could make it small and it wouldn't be pure, but it would be, it would phenotypically yeah. look like it. And yeah. maybe yeah, it wouldn't be So that, that, that leads you down these kind of dark and <laughs> kind of pathways. One is that you've got the people that want to retain pure lines and they're working to retain pure lines, which means inbred lines. And you've got the other ones in those cases that where you outcross them, but then you don't know that everybody that buys those in time will not then represent them as the mm -hmm. pure line. You know, so that's always the problem. And and no matter what people say about genetic testing, the likelihood that you're ever going to turn around and be able to test whether an animal is 100% pure Tara Hamara is 
less likely, at least in the next five or 10 years. Down the line, we should be able to, mm-hmm. because the cost of sequencing is reducing dramatically, but it's not good. We, we need animals from Tarahumara to act as controls right. that we can then compare to, right? So, yeah, I, no, I agree. I think, you know, I, I have Boa Sigma, and I got Boa Imperator from specific localities. I, I keep lines pure. And when I can outbreed, I do. So for like Hog Islands, you know, people talk about, well, mine are only the Sears line or this or that. I've got Sears line and Shewitt line and University of Arkansas line and one other. And I um, I randomly, I outbreed those. So I don't breed Sears to Sears or Shewitt to Shewitt. I, mm-hmm. I'll breed Sears to Shewitt. And I think this year we've done Alabama to Shewitt or Arkansas to Shewitt, right? Um, I don't believe in those, keeping those lines because like, you can get different lines and you can outbreed. Right. So I think that's beneficial, but I've got other things where you can't do that, you know, and, and you just have to, to, to just to go with the animals that you've got. It's um, it kind of sucks. Like I'm in a, I'm in a position where I can I can I can be a bit more selective because I can sequence their genomes and determine out of a litter which ones are the most unrelated because not all individuals will be fifty percent related to each other. Right. Based on the genes, right? But that's like a good. I think people would pay for that hypothetically. Yeah, you think that, but it's not beneficial. It's not worth it for me. People have asked me about it before. But for me to do that, I need to have a technician. I need to be so. If I told them the hourly rate, then it's not going to be worthwhile. Okay. But it's not just the hourly rate of DNA extraction and library preparation. You know, you've then got the cost of the sequencing run, but then you've got the bioinformatic analyses afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, nobody's going to really want that. You know, what people want are is my ball python head this or head that or whatever, right? And they'll do it with boas and they'll do it with a whole bunch of things, you know. So I'm like, and I'd thought about getting into that for a while. Right. Like we're, we're, we're doing a chromosome scale boa constrictor genome at the moment. So mm-hmm. we could certainly do all that. But again, it's just not worth it for me financially. You know, it, it, for, I would need to have a, a technician being paid, I don't know, 70,000 a year plus fringe or 60,000 a year plus fringe benefits to be able to just keep up with all of that there. Yeah. You know, well, there, uh, I guess you would have to have them cost. selling het tests too, yeah. in addition to it. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. So, like, that's why we didn't get, get, go any further with the um, sex determination tests. We developed them for a whole bunch of different species, but we just never marketed them because the university will also take a chunk of money. Right. The university mm-hmm. will say, right, we want 40% of this or 20% of this um, before you get anything. And just, it just makes everything very, very complicated. Was. This might be a spicy question. Uh, I'm not going to say this politely, but some other labs have been struggling with sex determination. In... Yeah, in Python's it's a mess. Can't really talk about it at the moment, but we thought we isolated sex determination markers for green tree pythons. Mm-hmm. And then um, we did more work and we realized that it's not as simple as we thought. Um, so we're, we're still working through that um, with a collaborator. Um, but, uh, cause that's not really what my lab does anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. but, um, sex determination for green tree pythons for Morelia in general, other pythons are fine. Burmese pythons and stuff like that, they're fine. But if you, <laughs> if you can't sex your Burmese python, then there's a problem, um, for green tree pythons or for like diamond pythons, then they're a bit more tricky. Um, mm-hmm. but unfortunately their genome is also a little bit more tricky. So, all right. I guess we have, we have some questions. Have you seen any defects in Tarumar's? I have not, but also we don't see a lot of them being produced. Mm-hmm. And you then, know, every year I might see one or two litters and they're small litters. Um, so I don't see a lot. Yeah. Uh, do you think 
ring pythons maybe have problems with inbreeding? Um, I don't know. Struggle? Uh, what do they struggle with? I, I, you know, the only struggle that I know with ring pythons is they dehydrate, you know. And they eat each other. It, yeah, but a lot of snakes do that. Though, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's inbreeding. <laughs> or that as, as a it's trait. Just a struggle. Inbreeding. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not aware of of any kind of deleterious conditions with ring pythons other than a predisposition to 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 dehydrate whenever the word water is mentioned mm-hmm. you know so you know it's almost as if they know you're thinking about it and then they will just decide to kill themselves by not drinking but yeah i'm not sure and then alex asks can you sell the sex determination for blue tongues to rti please i cannot because it's considered part of the university um uh, property property okay yeah Dang it. I, I had someone who was very popular in the, in, and some people know this story. I'm not going to tell it who it was, tried to get me to develop the test for that a number of years ago. And they would then market it themselves. And I would get a small percentage of the profits, but I was going to cost, it was going to cost me all of my money to develop the test. And I would be doing all of the testing, but only I would be paid. I think it was like 10% of the money that they would be getting. Yeah. Sweet deal. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> passed on that one. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Do you happen to know how many founder Tarhumars there were? I don't know. The, top of your head? the whole story, the whole story of Mexican boas in general, I find very weird because there's not a lot of stories about who brought them in. Um, and a number of years ago, a very popular breeder of locality boas, not Benruso was posting a lot of pictures on websites of Mexican boas, locality Mexican boas in their collection. And one day, and I'd approached this individual to ask for shared skin samples because we wanted to do a study that we ultimately ended up doing in collaboration with another group. But we wanted samples from localities in Mexico that this Mm -hmm. individual had and was representing in the trade. A day on one of these forums before we had Facebook and stuff on one of the Facebook, one of the um, internet forums, they were posting all of these pictures and several people from Mexico that lived in those areas said that their boas that were being posted do not represent the animals that they find in those areas. Oh no. And the individual told me that he wasn't going to send me, he or she wasn't going to send me uh, samples because I was going to use it to my benefit to market my animals instead of theirs, even though I was only producing a couple of litters of Sonoran boas, mm-hmm. none of these weird ones. And then that person disappeared. So, um, so whether they're actually Tarahumara or whether they're actually Tamalipas or whether I don't really know, I can't tell you because, um, unless we can compare them and what, what I know is that in our study 10 years ago or so, we didn't have Tarahumara in our data set. We didn't have, I don't think we had, maybe we did have Tamalipas. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, we didn't have the samples that we could then compare to the captive Mm -hmm. lineages. And I'm not an individual that wants to go into very deepest darkest mexico to find samples of boas to then to try and then um use as a as a way to um determine whether tarahumara is what it is but i would imagine that the number of founders is very small probably less than 10. boa export from mexico is illegal is that correct i've tried for the last two years to get paperwork to legally export um albino sonoran boas and it's been to no avail how did the uh, pied get out? I, I believe it crawled across the border 
very mysterious and crawled, <laughs> and crawled its way into arizona okay and found its way into a fedex box okay excellent along with along with sonoran t um t, t positive sonorans um, mm -hmm. they are and also apparently double heads that is peculiar how they made, they made a journey they, are. they made a journey um whenever do you think I was the other pied ones are imperator yes or yeah, you... they're from they're from guatemala they're, they're, i know but they known. say they're from guatemala i'm like very paranoid now. well that that story is pretty well known that whole okay. that whole story back yeah there's there's data we can find history of that they're going way back okay coming out of guatemala and sadly the person who brought them out as well is a bit of a shyster but um but yeah the the sonoran ones because i've you know i keep a lot of sonoran boas i've got pure anarthristics and leopards and hypos and all that kind of stuff so the t-positive sonorans would be great for my stuff but i'm not willing to risk my citizenship um right. or uh, my collection for the sake of a snake so, it's, so that's why i went head first into it to get legal paperwork i even had a student who i taught formerly in tulsa whose father works in mexico for the government and he, even he was trying to to work to get paperwork pushed through for me and to no avail there was a lot of people wanting money um oh. uh, but it was there was no um there was no way and, and there was no guarantee that even with that you were going to get the the paperwork so how many sonoran boas like in quotes that were pure do you think were exported because a bunch were, went to europe oh. And bunch yep. went here, and then we ruined them here by like making mutts with them. Yeah. Like, how many do you think were exported? Isn't that like a larger founder? I think it's not? a larger founder group. Yeah, I think it's a larger group. Um, my my Sonoran anarthristics are from the European um, export. Um, the hypos, we don't know for sure that leopards are even Sonoran. That's where they were said to be from. The lineage is said to be from Sonora, hmm. but there's no actual proof that they are definitely. Um, Sonoran, but you know they 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 have the kind of some of the phenotypic markers that we would expect from Sonora. Um, but it, it's it's a larger pool. The problem, of course, was that we then inbred the hell out of them. You know, like years ago, uh, whenever I moved to the U.S. eighteen years ago, I went up to um, Peter Cal's facility, mm -hmm. and he had bought a bunch of leopards from Hans Winter, and my Sonorans were all five feet kind of would eat large rats kind of thing his were the size of colombian boas and thicker than my thigh they were clearly just fed massive amounts but then they all started regurgitating and, and then they all died but i think that was more of a captive care thing mm -hmm. um and probably some inbreeding but um uh i think the bloodlines for sonoran are, are much bigger and um, the hypo sonorans we don't really know exactly where they were collected in sonora we just know that they were confiscated at the border Mm -hmm. And uh, so we don't know exactly where in Sonora or that range they're actually from. So they are Sigma. We refer to them as Sonoran boas, but you know. Right. Like I, like I, <laughs> I mean, people have been yelled at me for it, but I'm like, if you needed to outcross to our Hamar, you could keep it within the species and that would yeah, be. Yeah, people have done not, that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's commonly been done. There was a breeder on the West Coast um, I think Eric Kreider did that. Um, with um, he would breed leopards into Tarahumara, and they would just make ones that had slightly more orange or red bellies, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I they, think. Uh, yeah, and that's fine. Know. I've got no issue with that. You're still producing right. a Mexican Sigma leopard, right? Yeah, I have like straight up mutt boas that I think are also fine mm -hmm. and have their mm -hmm. place too. Yeah. I just, I'm just, I sort of like fuss on the internet about like 
inbreeding depression in these like rare localities. Cause I'm like, if we're saving them for not, then what are we saving them for? I don't know. But I think that's one of the biggest concerns with conservation in general. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can't increase diversity, then what do we do? And and part of the thought is that you outcross. It's right. been done with it's been done with dog breeds, right? So right. you'll find ladies where they'll outcross to the you know, the closest kind of suitable um uh, lineage, um, and then they will then back cross from there to eliminate traits that were detrimental. And I think you can definitely do that. Like I, the problem is that if you outbreak, well, we don't know exactly where in Sonora they were collected. So for God's right. sake, leopards, <laughs> anarchistic, hypers could all have been collected in, you know, the Tarahumara region, you know, they could all be that anyway. Right. So, right. Uh, I think we're all maybe thinking about it too much, uh, too deeply considering we don't. Isn't that what the internet's for though? Maybe. Yes, absolutely. It's you all know, for speculation like and all navel for, gazing know. and yeah, about exactly. stuff that literally doesn't actually matter. Um, yeah, that's why. That's why I just stopped even going into those kind of Facebook groups and and even thinking about that. Like I, a couple of years ago, I was really invested in a lot of those things, mm -hmm. and then I just stopped looking at it. You know, mm -hmm. in general, like like people try to friend me on on Facebook all the time that are related to snake stuff, and I'm like, you're not going to find any snakes on my Facebook page. Very right. rarely. It's family and music and crap like that there, you know? So um, if you want to see snakes then go to my, my Instagram page, that's kind of thing, you know, but uh, I just stopped looking at it because it just became people arguing and, um, and a lot of just like, what is my snake? And you're like, well, what did you buy it as? Well, I bought it as a Central American. Well, that's what you got. Right. You know? Yeah. All right. I think, I, I yeah, I don't want people to make stuff up, but I think since lots of things are made up as it is, it's okay to be like undocumented suspected CA could be yeah. anything. And that's what I said. Yeah. Like there's certain right. things we can identify, right? If it's het leopard, you can see that it's het leopard, mm -hmm. right? But you don't know that it's a Sonoran het leopard or a Sigma het leopard. It could be just a central American het leopard. That's it. Right. Right. That right. kind of thing. So, and I've got no problem. I think that's a great way to, to sell stuff, you know, and for most people that are keeping these, they're not interested in localities. They're interested in just, just like ball pythons putting one thing on top of the next thing and so on and you're always going to have those people that are really into lineages and localities and they will have their pure lines pure lines but yeah do you think boas will ever get or deserve a registry uh i don't think like so. a dog dog breed registry yeah, are we just too so, like I, I was approached about that yeah, i was approached about that um i don't think i went when it was maybe it was 2013 or 2014 and somebody wanted me to sign a non-disclosure agreement to talk about the whole thing. And I was like, I'm not doing that there. Yeah, what? You know? <laughs> so again, you want me to do all the testing and you want me to no, that's not going to work. Um, the reason being is that until we have all of the localities from the wild um, represented in, in a sufficient sample size where we can say, yes, this is this or this is that, there's no point having a registry. At least with dogs, for example, you've got long-term lineages that we can follow back mm -hmm. right so a friend of mine breeds irish wolfhounds and you know he's got 10 or 11 irish wolfhounds and for all of them we can trace back lineage after lineage after lineage pretty far back mm -hmm. it's hard for people to do that here in, in the kind of the reptile hobby yeah, i can look at my animals and say right i know who produced the great great grandfather of this year and, and i know the lineage from it but not a lot of people have that right and 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 along the way things get mistaken by some people and I just don't think it's, I don't think it's worth it. 
I don't see the point. Oh. Who's going to who's going to maintain it, and who's going to uh, do all the It would have to be like a, a a nonprofit organization interested in yeah. the propagation of captive boas. I mean, like I, I had registered goats, so we had two books. Yeah. We had a purebred book, and we had an mm -hmm. open American book. So you could actually yeah. breed a pure buck to whatever was floating around goat wise enough generations and they could get enrolled by percentage of nubian into the american right. books okay Te technically we could do that i'm not saying that's like a replacement for the wild animal but mm -hmm. you could have a known pure book and a known percent yeah but book. again again you're the known pure is difficult because it's known pure by, by well we food. just need like, to pay a bunch of grad students to run around and cartel yeah, country and not get yeah, shot see, i don't think that works <laughs> <laughs> and then but also then when you, the problem you got is also exporting um yes. genetic material so that's also a real problem from i mean could you sequence it in mexico countries. you can email you could yeah loads. you could sequence it in mexico and then you could um just upload the the data to the cloud but that means you need to have a collaborator with access to an aluminum sequencer in the lab and, and the, mm -hmm. you know and have the money you know for me to for me to do a run on a NovaSeq Illumina, it's about, I think here it's about $3,800, $34,000, something like that there. Um, and depending on the number of samples I want, if I'm doing whole genome, that's probably, yeah, for that, it's probably about 150 samples I can get away with. Mm -hmm. But not everybody has access to that kind of funding. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just the sequencing. That's not the library prep and everything else that goes with it for the DNA, but not everybody has access to that. And not all facilities have that available to you wherever you go. Because I've looked at that for other systems before mm -hmm. um, about, you know, doing work in Europe and sequencing there and making it easier. But it's just, it's, it's just, there's always, it's fraught with difficulties. It's, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Now, like if you look at our 2014 paper, 2015, whenever that came out, there's a really good sample size in it. And a lot of those are sampled from museum specimens and samples that were The phylogeographic and population one? Yeah, Darren Card's paper. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, a great paper. My I have a quick question. Yeah. Quick question. Yeah. Did you have Longicata in or no. in okay, because it's like it looks like there's no like no. a perder intrusion down the west coast of the Andes. And I'm like, if you look at them, they're they are weird. Yeah, yeah. So we will do the well, I will do those at some point. I've also okay. got I've also got shed skin from Nebulosa and Orophius um and a bunch of other things. Is that, Nebulosa uh, still in the hobby? No. Well uh, yes. I mean in Europe. I because they had those problems I, I know with of, like I know of I disease. know of some in the U yeah, I know of some in the US. Um, oh some in the I, US, that's cool. Yeah. There's I don't I'm not aware of any Orophius in the US. Um and the ones in Europe that I'm aware of, the Nebulosa and the Rufius, all came down with IBD. I think it was, I think it was IBD, mm -hmm. and kind of knocked them out. Um, really cool snakes, you know. Like I, I had a friend back in England um, who sadly passed away about I don't know 18 years ago. He had Nebulosa and he had a Rufius, and they were the funny thing was the the Rufius were really beautiful. The Nebulosa were horrible. Um, I like Nebulosa. I, They're weird. Oh, I love like... them. Not yeah. Fantastic! I love them. Yeah. And I've I've been working on a project to try and bring them in from the island again. Okay, uh, that'd be in, cool. To bring in ten animals, the same thing as the, the, the same way as we did with the Trinidad Rishenbergeri. Mm -hmm. So I'm using that as a as a as a model to then take to um, Saint Lucia and to Dominica to try and bring in a, a some animals specifically for scientific research. Do you have to? I don't know. Opt in a 
zoo and be like, some of them will be at the zoo. Wink. No. And some, okay, no. All right. No, but, but, but with like with our Trinidad, that the offspring for that go to um, zoological institutions for okay. the first generation. That's second good. Generation, I we, like that. Second generation I'm, I'm we can to... sell. Yeah, and we generate a stud book from it. Um, so we know the genetic diversity good. within the original finding group good. and the ind individuals that were crossed and so on. I think um, that that's good. Like, we've yeah. messed up so much stuff in the hobby as hobbyists. You know, I don't know. It'd be nice to have yeah. something Sadly, nice that's... from the beginning. Yeah, sadly, but so, sometimes that's been intentional. Sometimes it's been unintentional. Mm -hmm. You know, a great example of the unintentional are the um, the Fiji Island iguanas. Fiji mm -hmm. Island iguanas were thought to be like one lineage, one species, and the zoos were crossing them and breeding them, and it turned out they they were multiple species. So it, it kind of screws things up, you know. But and that was that that was before really that you had access to a lot of the molecular tools that we have now to be able to determine lineage and species. Um, so I think, but there has definitely been a whole bunch of deliberate crosses that are done. Like I, well, the funny thing is whenever I bred, uh, whenever I first crossed leopards into the Costa Rican T-positive line, they were mm -hmm. both in Parader. And right. a year later, I was part of the group that changed that. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had hybrids. Do people um, get, some of them get very, I don't know, antagonistic about stuff like that. And you're like, but I've. But they used to be all the same, so it was yeah, you a, know, yeah. yeah. People people get antagonistic about it because and they don't even understand what they're talking about. Okay, it's just they use they hear other ones with buzzwords and they think that's the way to do it, you know. So, um, you know, does it change how we keep these animals? No, it doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. Are these animals going to be released into the wild? No, they're not. You know, they're right. not going to be brought back to Mexico or Costa Rica or anything. You know, so um, just enjoy them for what they are. You know, that's my very opinion. good policy that's I mean, why a lot of people that's, like that's get really mad and i'm yeah, like, like i have my i have my sigma lineages and i've got my imperator lineages and um i only keep costa rican imperator enough maybe i've got no no, no hold on i've got the freaking island ones. island ones yeah but i'm not they're not being bred into anything else there there's project specific um but you know i've also got the sigma imperator crosses but they're represented as such nobody's going to look at a Costa Rican T-positive hypo leopard and say that that's hopefully, uh, you know, right. But, but then again, I have anarthristic leopards that are pure Sigma and I'm working mm -hmm. on anarthristic hypomelanistic leopards that are pure Sigma. Right. But at least I can still represent them. I, I can say these are pure Sigma. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I think people will believe you too. So that's good. I hope so. <laughs> Do you, so like, I watch uh, in the paper there. Ta you talked about like you know different alleles for um, insulin like growth factor being sort of diminished, and like the concentration of that in certain island species and other growth genes. Do you think some of there's also like epigenetic changes that aren't actually like fixing alleles that would also contribute to small size in island boas that would maybe like roll back. Once they're in know. captivity and like, yeah, well, I think that's a good given more food. We look, at, we look at hog islands and they're a great example of that, right? Hog islands on the island are size restricted because of the food that's available to them. Mm -hmm. But you bring them off the islands and then they can grow to six feet, seven feet, right? right? And I've talked to, you know, some, um, some friends that work on, on, have worked on the boas on the islands 
and they've said that every so often they'll find like a six or seven foot female but it will be the thickness of a broomstick just because the food's not there to be able to maintain mm -hmm. its size and they'll they'll obviously, obviously dwindle away and die um but they seem to reach the three and a half four feet and that seems to be where they peak out on the island but that's a diet restricted thing i, I i'm curious about the smaller boas on islands we certainly see the cocker cay and the crawl cay and stuff getting it bigger than what we would expect them to be on the island but that's because on those islands they are very food restricted very diet restricted to a very short period of time where they mm -hmm. gorge and then they fast for a very long period of time if we were if we replicated that in captivity we would see our animals staying smaller size vin reese is a great example of that because right. that's what he does um, and that's why he's got you know he'll post pictures of of hog island boas that would sit in the palm of his hand kind of thing when you grab it um so I think there are some factors that are associated with it. Totally environmental. There's a lot that are that are environmentally driven, and there will be some that are genetically um, uh, controlled that are, you know, could be related to size and so on. Right. I I think the hard part is being like, does feeding them like they would eat on the mainland break them, or does it restore the genetic potential? of what they could have been on the mainland i'm not saying like overfeed but it instead of like that mm. seasonal feeding like is a six mm. foot hog island ruined or if it was yeah, I don't it was think six it's years to get there and it yeah you know was still fed ruined. with lots of breaks and fasting yeah. periods I, I, is I it feed broken? mine you know I, I i've got hog islands that are you know, probably five and a half feet and eat jumbo rats but they'll eat one once a month and they'll eat seven of those a year Right, and then right. they last from November through to through to March, um, and I wouldn't consider them broken. Um, right, right. I I wouldn't either. But there's some people have been like, if your hog island is bigger than X, it's a hybrid or, or like you know yeah, a locality also, cross. And I'm like, there's also maybe. a lot of people that will say that there's no pure hog islands in in the U.S. and that's nonsense. <laughs> you know, you can tell just by looking at a snake whether it's a pure hog island or not. It's very easy. Yes, there's a lot of crosses, mm -hmm. but. But there are, in my opinion, there are many more pure hog islands than people think. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Purple Church has a question. Can you talk about the origin of the type two anery gene in Sigma and how that came about? I can. I bought a group of animals with a friend from Europe in 2000, probably 2000. And they came in through um, an importer called Clive Osborne, the guy that I mentioned earlier that had the nebulosa and the rophius. He had a very large um, locality collection of boas um, in the UK and in London. He sadly passed away from cancer in 2006, 2000, yeah, 2000, 2005. Um, and at this point in time, I was mainly keeping emerald tree boas and Amazon tree boas. Had a pair of ball pythons and stuff like that there, but I didn't want something that was, that was big. And my friend who he and I brought these animals in together, um, he had some Colombian boas that were like eight feet, enormous big beasts. And I, I just thought I, I don't want that. So Clive told us about the small desert boa and he could get six of them and it was 2.4. So we got those. I kept the largest pair and they were probably about four feet. Um, a friend uh, kept a couple, one of them passed away, one of them died, it just, didn't, it just failed to thrive. And we might've sold the pair. Um, but um, I got them and, and they were dark boas, they were small fed great but i just didn't think much of them and i put them into a four foot by two foot enclosure is when i lived back in belfast 
they were on the ground floor or they were on the, the on the floor level of the room it was a small box room and on one side were all my corrales and then a bunch of baby racks and then this two foot by four foot by two foot by two foot enclosure on the bottom i didn't realize that it was around november that the power must have gone out that the ceramic heater on that must have blown and it wasn't heating them um but underneath that floor was leading to a radiator in the uk you've got wall-mounted radiators that are you know yeah. hot water generated and it was right sitting above the hot water heat uh, line so it was getting some heat um at the same time i was building two four by two by two enclosures for each of those snakes in a different room and i think in january or february i brought them in and put them into those separate enclosures and i just you know went back to not thinking about them much feeding them and that was it and one night i was working on one of my phd chapters it was 2002 and i turned around and i saw the female was giving birth and she Surprise. popped out a baby. She, she, yeah, I didn't even know she was gravid. She popped out a baby that was stillborn and it was gray, black and white. And I just thought, well, you know, sometimes with early kind of premature stuff, they can they can have those kind of color issues. She produced, I think, I think maybe 12 or 13 babies in total. I need to look at my records, but there was one other baby that was gray, black and white. It was alive, it was a female. So I kept that and I sold the rest. And a year later, I um, bred them again and she produced four more anathristics and a bunch of possible hats, which I sold. And I then traded some of those anathristics in Europe with other people for albinos and stuff like that there. So it was 2002 was the first. I've got a picture of it somewhere I can send you. Um, but it was a great snake. And that lineage is wonderful because they're very similar to the black-eyed anathristic, mm -hmm. but they don't have black eyes. So they're they're small. Um, they uh, The black-eyed anathristic line can get really big. These here are the standard size for Sonorans. But they're jet black, uh, white and gray. There's no browning out on them, and awesome. their eyes are silvery. They start off lighter in color, which is really interesting. Whenever you produce them, they start out light, and over the space of two years, they get darker and darker and darker. Until Do they get the tail black becomes... tail? Yeah, really jet, really jet black. Yes. Um, so I um, I saw so this 2002. I first produced them. Um, what else happened then? So I then moved to the US in 2005, 2006, January 1st, 2006. And I brought one with me, uh, the, the original female. And I didn't do much with it. I didn't really, didn't really, no, I brought two, I brought a pair. I didn't really do much with them. I just kind of did their stuff. That female ended up dying while gravid, which sucked. And then I didn't really think much more about the project. I was producing things here and there. And it was only a couple of years ago that I really got back into it. And decided I should really do something with this here. Mm -hmm. So we've produced a lot of different things. You know, we've got anarthristic leopards, we've got anarthristics, we've got hypo anarthristics, that kind of thing. Um, and we're busy. We should have hopefully two litters this year with them. But I've only sold a handful in the US. I think I could count on on two hands the number of anarthristics that I've sold in the US over the last couple of years. You should make some more. We need them. Like they are. We got. I've got um, two females being bred by um, anathristic leopards at the moment. How did your collection do with the move? Were they a little bit confused or? Which one? The one from Belfast to the US? Or, no, no. Or, or, I'm or, sure or... that one did a lot, but like from <laughs> Tulsa to. Well, it's funny. Well, think about it. I did it twice, right? I did it from Raleigh to Tulsa. Mm -hmm. At that point I had a hundred and something animals, including several that were gravid. And I did that over four days and, and that was fine. I lost no animals and grabbed the females, gave birth later on and everything was fine. This one coming here was different because 
um, we weren't just moving straight away. I was, um, I spent between January and, Ju and July, I was driving back and forth between Tulsa and Blacksburg every two weeks. Mm -hmm. So I was spending two weeks in Tulsa and then two weeks in Blacksburg. At the same time, we're getting ready to sell our house. And the last thing you want in this beautiful 100-year-old home in Midtown Tulsa, the last thing you want is to go into the basement and find 120-something snakes. If you're, well, I, I wouldn't buy I, I would be fine with it. I think everyone But can. for most buyers, I've heard that that is frowned upon. <laughs> right, exactly. So thankfully, I've moved my animals to my friend in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. And he's a friend of mine that probably one of my best friends I've known him since we met in Belfast 30 years ago. So, um, and we just ended up being several hours apart in the U S which is kind of weird. He's from, from the UK. And, um, so he also keeps snakes. In fact, I've, I've got a number of animals that I've sent him on long-term breeding loans, my Wilma's and my Darwin carpets and all that kind of stuff. And some like the leucistic bows stuff. I've sent him all of those just to play with. But he then housed most of my, all of my collection and they all did fine. But what was happening was that we weren't feeding them really because I didn't want to run to, to Jonathan and say, um, by the way, could you feed these every two weeks as well and clean up after them? Right. So for six months, they were on a real minimal. They might've been fed twice, three times. The young ones were fed more often, but the, the anything that was two years old or, or above got fed maybe two or three times in six months. And, um, and it's funny because I did not intentionally put animals together while I was, you know, there and when I would defecate it and I would move things around. And But I always moved them around to things that I would move them to if I was breeding them. And I ended up still producing four or five litters last year, which was kind of crazy. I lost three animals, um, but they were all age-related, I believe. It was an, an emerald, a male emerald tree boa um, who was 20, 22 years old. Um, yeah. and every year he would, he was a great breeder, but every year he would go into this fasting phase and it would really be hard to kick him out of it in the last three years. But, um, this time he just didn't want to come out of it. Um, and then there was a, a leopard that I produced 18 years ago and she had produced like six or seven litters in her days. And she had started to show this decline, not feeding very well, even before the move. And then, um, another animal, I forgot what the other one was, but, um, so those three that were kind of age related, everything else. You know, we moved it as soon as I we got settled here. I got the the room in, in the basement that I'm using at the moment set up. Drove down to Knoxville, which is three hours away, and loaded everything into a U-Haul and brought them back. And um, and at that point, I put them into a full-on massive feeding phase. And mm. uh, I was feeding them every seven days, and um, you know they regained any lost weight very rapidly. And uh, my bank bank balance depleted very rapidly as well from buying all of those rats. Mm -hmm. um, but everything's been great yeah everything's you know this year it's it's crazy i've got you know I, i've got a lot of animals paired i've got multiple that have gone through post ovulation sheds and multiple that are paired uh, and still breeding so it's, we're probably gonna have a pretty decent um year of production you know yeah while you were in knoxville you bought you sold shane i did snakes yeah we, we met uh, we met at like Six five thirty in the morning. Yeah, the, he's like the the, my... an Irish guy and a bunch of wolfhounds come out of the mist. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> and I, I walk, I walked down. My friend's got this massive driveway, and I walked down to the end of it with these ten wolfhounds wandering around me with this little snake in my hand. And and uh, yeah, that was funny. Yeah, Shane's yeah. a great guy. I like him a lot. So yeah, yeah he, he got a, a leopard. I think it was a, a I can't remember if it was a male or a female, but he got a leopard from it. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's uh but yeah, but very I'm slowly getting into boas. We're tricking him into it. Uh, That's good. He just starts needs to sell. Just get rid of a lot of those those ball pythons into boas. You know, so it'd be yeah. easier to sleep at night. You know. Well, the nice thing about boas is they're harder to breed as well. You know, like right. ball pythons, you can put the two of them into a wet paper sack. And they'll breed <laughs> at any time of the year, and you'll get eggs. Right? Yeah, they're it's like teenagers. Right. You know, right. with with um. With with boas, it's a little bit more work, and there's you know you're you're unlikely to get a hundred percent, you know. Um, right. That's know, like a pairing to, to production. So I have a gosh, it's probably ten or eleven pure sigma female het leopard. I mean, mm -hmm. let me air quote that pure. I yeah. bought her that way, but I don't technically know. I didn't collect her from the woods, mm. and I can barely get her to ovulate. Should I should I just like put her outside? In like 50 yeah, degree cool. weather. Yeah. So one of the big things with Sigma that I find is that I need I drop them down to about 70 degrees in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um I did actually with all of my all of my boas, but the Sigma really take advantage of it. So once I it's you know, so it's interesting this year because I've moved from a hundred year old home that had a basement that dropped down into sixty degrees mm -hmm. from November through to February. And I never adjusted the heat in those in those enclosures. But the cool end would always drop down to 70 or thereabouts because of just the just the, the gradient. The females would and the males would just move to that cool end. They, mm -hmm. Even though there was a hot spot still available, they would just stay and they would sit at that cool end. You tempt them and they're sitting at 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. And they sit there for three or four months. Obviously, I'm not feeding them at that point. Um, when I was in when I was in Raleigh, um, they were in a room that was sitting at, at 75 or some 72 or something because it was an upstairs room that we didn't use so the air conditioning wasn't really running in it it was harder to get them to breathe at that point because i don't think they got low enough the, mm -hmm. the sonora region gets cold at night um and i think that's what we need to simulate um here it's a bit different as well because i'm now in this you know relatively high-tech brand new home that's ultra insulated and so it's been a bit more work to get them cooler but i think i think i got them down to 70 or at least close to it Okay. Uh, maybe I mean, I can move her so like in the house, like the stake building. Yeah. I don't know. It's just I think it's just too hot. Like the the year I got her to go, and she just had two babies and some slugs. Bunch of slugs, yeah. So that that's just a that, topic related thing for yeah. female and or the male. I just like I gave her no heat at night, and then I plugged it in during the day. But then, yeah. and then I paired her once she came out of that after that three month fast. And I haven't even bothered since then, cause it's almost too hard to, it's not too hard in my system. Mm -hmm. I need a like, special zone for. Yeah, so what, what I do with my Sonoran stuff is I keep them closer to the ground. I don't use fans in my room to circulate heat. I don't use a, I don't use a room heater. I, everything's on, um, they're either in Freedom Breeder kind of racks or the arboreals are all in arboreal enclosures, but they all have separate heat for their systems they're not on a on an ambient room um so therefore there's no fan circulating air in my room so it will stratify you know the closer to the ground it's going to be colder and i keep the sonoran stuff on the ground levels and they will get colder um right. and my, my friend um mike robinette in, in in north carolina um he has been getting into sonoran bow as well and, and we, i talked to him about that as well about getting them colder it seems to be the key for me at least it might not be for everybody but for mine getting them at or close to 70 but having access to a hot spot i find pretty important 
even at that's night. What I, yeah. So I I um I drop mine uh so an ambient normally is about eighty four, eighty three, eighty four with a hot spot, and then I'll drop them down. Um, you know, the room just naturally gets colder. Now this time I've had to set the thermostat to kind of ramp down to the kind of seventies. Uh, to be able to let, let them do that but it, but it seems to we'll, we'll see i've got the sonorans are still breeding my sonorans would always breed later they'd already normally ovulate from march through to june um everything else kind of ovulates a little bit earlier so the sonorans are still breeding pretty heavily mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. if you look at nighttime drops where they're from it can be in the 50s yeah in the winter absolutely. it does warm yeah. up every day pretty much yeah. but yeah they, yeah they can they can definitely cope with it you know yeah. i've yeah, I've got no. I think Sonorans are the uh, probably the most robust of the of the kind of the boa group. I think Argentines are probably the same. They'll get pretty cold in Argentina, mm-hmm. um, but for the Sigma Imperator kind of groups, I think Sonorans are the ones that will will tolerate the greatest temperature uh, range. Do you think that they're like I don't know, like diamonds or bolens or something, where like maybe UV light is more important than we think it is? to I never use it never I, use um, it. I use i use a little bit with my arboreal stuff and i don't see a difference okay i've, I've never used it with my with the imperator or sigma um, they've always been well when i was younger like 30 30 something close to 30 years ago i used to keep them in in kind of melamine enclosures um and they had lights but they, at that point they weren't uv lights um mm-hmm. anything that i've had with the uv light recently like just as a, i had some in my last office and there was a uv light in with those and i didn't notice any any behavioral change or any mm-hmm. and i didn't when i read them there i didn't notice anything really different yeah it, i mean the uv police are probably in the in the chat <laughs> right now but That's sometimes there probably is a difference and sometimes there probably isn't it just depends on the species but animals mm-hmm. that are cold or cold tolerant Maybe they might depend on it more or something, but I just wondered yeah, if you've noticed it. Yeah, I, in my years of breeding Sonorans, and I've probably produced 30, 35 litters. I've only ever had one litter that had that was slugs, and it was my fault for removing the male before she ovulated. Mm-hmm. Um, males, boas are terrible at storing sperm, so therefore trying to breed one male to multiple females rarely works very well. Mm-hmm. And removing a male before the female ovulates rarely results in, in success. I did that um, this year. <laughs> I yeah, messed and, I didn't even think she was going. I didn't ultrasound her yeah. or whatever or do anything. And the females like, will swell and it makes them look like they've ovulated, but it's a pre-ovulation swell. No, it's a trap every time. Until mine until mine goes into that um post ovulation shed um then I uh, and and starts basking then I don't remove the male. Um but uh yeah I, I think UV for something you know if you use it cool remember you can also you can there can be uv toxicity mm-hmm. um so be careful um as i say i've got it in with my um some of my emerald tree boas just because i've got live plants in there as well and you know and i don't see a difference i don't see them basking any differently i don't see them behaving any differently and i don't see them breeding any differently all right you heard it here first Everybody. Uh, all right. Purple Church asked, do you know if a pure Sonoran leopard ghost exists? Yeah, it does. Do you have it? I can't say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Check Instagram. Maybe, maybe, they'll be, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe there'll be posts 
um, yeah. not, near, not too near. No, not that too, sounds not too distant future. Obviously, it would be called a snow leopard. Please call it. That. No, it'll just be called no, ghost leopard. Hypo leopard. I'm not one for um. I'm not one for the names. For I funny names. One with that recently. Yeah, I can't do it. Um, yeah, I, see, I've 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 hoarded a lot of things. I've produced a lot of double hats and triple hats and bred them back and hoarded a lot of things over the years that um, I just don't have the time to post a lot of stuff. Um, and I kind of do it very strategically whenever I've got projects that I'm wanting to move or push. Isn't that what like TAs are for, like undergrads or whatever? Not for me, but that's not what we do in my lab. My I know, you just trick them into it. Just be like, I have social media time. Take a picture of the nah. snake, upload it. No, nah, because we, we don't do they Most of my students don't even know that I do anything with snakes. I feel like when I TA'd, I did the worst stuff. Like, I had to go through and find all the, like, you know how there's, like, fetal remains in every lab somewhere that people oh, yeah. lost yeah. the paperwork for, and they're like... Yeah. And so they'll get shunted from lab to lab to like figure out where this fetus goes. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. This is I'm not qualified to find this fetus at home. And then realize here, I, I haven't taught. I, I don't know when I'll be teaching. Maybe maybe next year I'll teach a course. But okay. I went from teaching six courses a year in Tulsa to teaching one every year, maybe two. Is that the best? One every two years. That's awesome. Yeah, it's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> Who do you hate yeah, more, I, grad students or undergrads? I don't hate any of them. They're all really beneficial. My lab. You can be make what fun it of them. This is your chance to just make fun no. of any. My lab would not be what it is without without undergrads. I've had undergrads that have generated preliminary data that's resulted in six hundred thousand dollar grants, and I've had grad students that have generated data that's resulted in really kind of really media impacting papers. So I, I, I see love them. them. As being really I love important. that. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Um. Let's look at my little notes. Okay, weird question, but I read this paper that you were on and I was like, hmm, the maternal attendance and kin discrimination in pit vipers. Do you mm -hmm. think boas could do, do this too? With, could, can they recognize? I don't if, know. If left for a while in like a litter, they smell each other, like sisters recognize each other or mother offspring recognize each other yeah i don't know anybody doing it um i don't see why not um but we also don't see kind of the group denning behavior mm -hmm. and aggregation behavior in boas and pythons that we do in pit vipers yeah. you know so we can go out like i've got samples that i'm playing with now that are crotalus viridis that we're sequencing for a grad student, not in my lab, but I'm just doing it to help out. And we're going to be looking at relatedness and lineage kind of aspects. Um, because, you know, my friend Emily Taylor has posted a bunch of pictures over the years of really cool pit vipers that are all sitting beside each other and doing their thing. And we know from those, there's a lot of them where we can trace them back to being siblings, mm -hmm. half siblings and so on. Um, with boas, we just don't see that aggregation of animals to my knowledge. You see some aggregation when it comes to breeding season where you get multiple males trying to breed a female just like you do with anacondas mm -hmm. but then they tend to disperse you know so it's um the question is are those males related in any way or are they totally unrelated just randomly coming right away? are they brothers teaming up tag teaming yeah so yeah at least it brought up any, the carpet any, question yeah. which is sort of where this is going like there's a paper that like the with in python natal incest where they were doing I don't know. There was clearly like not just 
nesting behavior, but also mm-hmm. like maternal attendance, and they were mm-hmm. thinking about each other. So it's obviously in the in the wheelhouse potentially. And if the carpets yep. are like potentially choosing nest sites together, they could actually be sisters or. So what are they? Yeah. So boas and pythons are what, maybe about fifty million years separated, right? That's not that much. <laughs> Far. <laughs> well, and then there was a paper. It was like all of the instances of maternal attendance in all squamates. It's like a big beta analysis, and it's usually like skinks because they're oviparous and they yeah. pair up and, and, and take care of their yeah. babies. Yeah, yeah, that paper. And I was like, do boas do that? I and mean, maybe they don't. Maybe they do disperse, but do they recognize each other when so, they see I, each so other? I'm not. I'm not aware of any papers that look at boas breeding in the wild other than you know these right. little herp review notes that have come along and said we find them three males and one female i don't you know and we see if you go onto that um i naturalist you'll see pictures of gravid boas frequently mm-hmm. but it's individual animals so we don't know what we can see is whenever there's gravid pit vipers there's a bunch of gravid pit vipers all all around the same mm-hmm. place right with pythons you often see the same thing but we know a decent a bit about Python home ranges because of Rick Shine's work. And we know that they could be overlapping and therefore where they're coming together is just the ideal. It could either be the ideal spot for incubating. So you think there has to be like be, a... Or it could be just a, an ancestral place where that's where they constantly go back to. You see that in Bowling's Pythons where nests are being reused mm-hmm. and so on. So there's obviously, you know, we, gotta, we, we can't think of these as just being dumb animals. There's some, you know, homing behaviors and naturalistic tens trends to go back to to certain areas um where you might see then i think with pythons you're more likely to see group group nesting i don't with boas i don't know and, and whether and whether siblings will recognize each other i don't know either i think that'd be a, it'd be a neat project for someone that wanted to, to develop that it's going to be a pain in the ass because um you know you've got the whole process of producing the offspring to then go mm-hmm. from there it's not as if you just turn around it's, with corn snakes it's different right right i can I used to breed so many corn snakes. It was it was vomit inducing, <laughs> and and uh, I, but I you love know corn snakes you, though. When, oh, so do I. I think they're great. But when you put two together, you kind of knew you were getting at least right. One you have many replicates. Sometimes uh, two. Yeah, very easy to get. With boas, it's a bit harder than that. Right. You know. So I think the work involved in doing that is more difficult. And for the armchair scientists at home, I think having the the, the setups required and the replicates required to get any statistically sound data is also a little bit more complex. Yeah. Yeah. It might be cool. like, I don't know, like resource partitioning, like mm-hmm. it, in the carpets, there is only one good spot to have your, to, to right. nest with yeah. your eggs. And so like, yeah. maybe they recognize sisters because they actually interspecifically compete with other females for preferred sites, mm-hmm. but they might mm-hmm. not do that to sisters or mothers, daughters. I don't know. Like that. And I read that Neurodia paper where the <coughs> unrelated Neurodia will cannibalize younger Neurodia, but oh, if they notice yeah, that Neuro- it's good. God, they're horrible. Neurodia will eat anything. That <laughs> but moves. they'll resist eating their stuff they're related to. Yeah. You'll see that in rodents as well, though. You'll mm-hmm. see preferential cannibalization of um of unrelated versus related right. yeah I, you know but um you know with with pit vipers again it's, it depends on production and you know they're often born i don't know they, they stay i don't know yeah i, I don't know I, in all of the litters mm-hmm. of boas that i produced they are 
very rarely for any period of time sitting near each other. And and here's mm-hmm. the deal. I most of my litters of bulls are born whenever I'm away on vacation and I'm coming back two weeks later hoping there's no stillborns. Right? <laughs> and it's like rotten. Yeah. Um, You're peeling off chunks of dried goo. That's it. In the enclosures, they're everywhere in the enclosure. They're not all yeah. huddled together. And I think if those enclosures were bigger, those things would be even gone. further apart. Yeah, yeah it so does I, seem like they bolt. And sometimes the mothers will be waking them up. And even if they're touched, they'll like shake yeah. them off. <laughs> they already yeah. don't want to be touched by them. Right. Yeah. But they'll so, wake them up and be like, go. Yeah. So I would, I would think if we're going to see any, you know, maybe iNaturalist will have the odd picture, maybe Herperview, but Herperview is hard to, to search. Mm-hmm. You might find pictures of, you know, where they've come across females that have just given birth or recently birthed. But, you know, with, with pythons, they got to stay at least, you know, they, they're in the egg for a bit after they, you know, once they kind of crack through the egg, then they're still there sitting in it for a while. And there's that longer period of time together. I, I don't know. I, I think with bows, you're probably less likely to see it, but I, um, there's a lot of work to test it. I think you could test it, but I think it's gonna be a lot of work to test it realistically. I mean, it would be possible like a tree bow would be more likely to do it or an yeah, anaconda. I don't think so. They yeah, also run bows. away. Yeah, and the thing is they drop them from the trees. Right? So they're, <laughs> Bye. Not, they're not coming. Yeah. So they'll go to the lower branches and drop them, but that's it. They're like, screw you. And uh, so you might find some aggregation for a period of time, but I think they're they're getting out of there as well. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know if they do anything. I just, all of it is very interesting. All of like the reproductive ecology and like potential, you know, uh, gender selection a little bit, like minor biases that could exist. Maybe all that we need more. I don't know who's going to pay for any of this (laughs) research. That Well, here's the deal. Sorry. All of the parthenogenesis work I've done, I've paid for that. You know, nobody's funding that kind of work. Right. No. You know, so it's uh and and there's been a bunch of people that i've helped out by doing parent analysis on animals i've paid for that there in the end you know they might have given me an animal or something like that there but i've paid for all of that a lot of times i've done it for free um there's an individual now who's trying to find lineage history on the scaleless corns and um, yeah and i'm doing genetic testing for that there for free you know and that's costing me realistically when i think about how much that's going to cost me that's probably going to cost me several thousand dollars. Do you want a charity auction, brother? No. No, I'm serious. No. We'll know. put a bunch of ball pythons up and sell them. <laughs> we'll get Eric yeah. some yeah. for, no, for no, Eric. No, no, no. Friend of the uh, show, Eric. No, I, for that, I you know I see a real benefit in that their kind of project, you know. So because of the problem it's creating. Is he trying to prove that most scaleless corn snakes are such a high percent corn snake that it doesn't matter that there were some embryi in it at some point? Well, he's not trying to. I actually approached him about it a while back when okay. I heard he was. I, I, I've never met him. But whenever I'd, I'd heard either on podcasts or on um, maybe on, the, I don't know, somebody sent me a link about the issues that he was having. I thought, well, you know, the, the big question for me is, are do we know the actual lineage history of these animals? And can we prove that they are embryi or can we prove that they are pure corns or what? And at that point, you know, what, to what percentage does it need to be, to be a, right. to be considered, you know, um, a hybrid still, you know? So, so we're, we're trying to get the, the biggest thing is that this really, it, it really depends on getting samples from those early scaleless animals. 
right you know because corn snakes breed you know so easily so rapidly in terms of at young ages we can, we've gone through a lot of generations already right the um, average we, scale is right now is pretty far removed from yeah so we can lose emri yeah so if emri is there we can lose emri pretty quickly the other good thing however is that like many zoology professors things that die in our collections we keep in the freezer maybe unintentionally i think mm -hmm. we're going to dump it at some point so if you dig down in that rodent freezer you're probably going to find one of the early scaleless corns <laughs> right right <laughs> and we can get tissue from those things so um so we're playing with it you know literally i just i just got this from no it's from ryan young where's the other one i just got yeah from eric today awesome. shed skin samples so and these ones are amethystine pythons for our project from ryan young yeah yeah what happened to eric is dumb but illinois Illinois is also just dumb because they ban yeah. like Mexican hognose, which is a completely different species because mm. it just could look like Western hognoses. Right. Right. It's like, so yeah. they're failing. So I, even if it doesn't, they're just, they just will just ban stuff for fun. I don't yeah, know if they can whether, be convinced. Ultimately, whether it will help with anything, I don't know. But um, it's, uh, it's for me, it's kind of, it's a curiosity, you know, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm kind of fascinated by that kind of stuff. Hybridization is kind of interesting in general, but if it, if it can help in any way where we can generate data that is scientifically signed data and say, here you go, this proves that these scaleless corns are, you know, 90 something percent, you know, corn snake and not emery eye, then, you know, realistically, there should be no reason why these can't be kept in, in that area, at least providing data to allow them to then make a judgment from that there. It'll be funny because <laughs> it's probably like part king snake, part corn snake part Isn't rat everything. snake part whatever yeah, I, don't, I don't think yeah i don't think so i think, I think they are i think some yeah, of them are weird i think they're ugly as hell what uh, jungle corns think, oh scaleless you know, scaleless i think scaleless yeah. animals in general right on <laughs> are pretty awful <laughs> you don't like the flaccid wrinkly thing with no lips no no, it's terrible. It's just, oh. God, did you see the scaleless sperm? It's like the worst yeah. thing I've ever seen. So I described that to a friend years ago. So I saw the um, the first scaleless that was brought to Daytona a whole bunch of years ago. I saw it. And I described it to someone who wasn't there as it looked like my grandmother's old leather sofa. The really, really old one that's like a 60-year-old sofa that's it's all like got crunchy. all the cracks through it. <laughs> It's a crunchy and it's got the cracks. It's really nasty. And it's so I, said, it's, I said, it's just like that. It looks like, you know, in, in the, in the winter, you know, your skin cracks and stuff mm -hmm. like that. I thought it's like that. And I'm sure that's just horrible for those animals. All right. And what does it feel that, like, or what does it feel like to not have heat pits when you're supposed to express heat? Well, pit? apparently they'd be fine. They just, the females just can't breed, right? They just don't produce. But yeah, it's, yeah, um, but, listen, if you got to lubricate your snake to keep it going, I don't know. Exactly. And the fact that they shed like every 10 days or whatever. And if you're not there and you have to sniff the skin for it to be able to see for me as an evolutionary biologist, that's something that suggests it's not going to do well. Right. So yeah, maybe we, should we shouldn't be propagating it. We find albino adults in the wild. We find anarthristics and pies and all these different color morphs. Mm -hmm. We don't find adult scaleless animals in the wild to my, to my knowledge. For some things, it's fine. I, I think for corns and stuff like that, they're, they sort of, they, they're a, bit, a little bit different. But oh. for the pythons, the, the, like there's the scaleless 
um, there was a scaleless bowlings right or a partially scaleless bowlings at one point and yeah it's, Alex it's, just uh, brought up the scaleless shingle back which sounds like the worst thing ever <laughs> <laughs> look at this <laughs> that looks terrible yeah oh that's awful yeah I'm I'm strongly anti scaleless even in species where it's fine like corns and rat snakes and whatever I just think like uh, what what's too much right we can change the color yeah. that's fine yeah color and pattern is fine with me whenever yeah. you remove a part of it that's really pretty important you know it's like having a skinless human you know <laughs> it's kind of... right or like let's breathe let's get rid of your, let's get rid of your fingernails <laughs> enjoy that yeah especially for animals that have heat pits like can you imagine like a scaleless emerald its whole face would be just like gone I don't yeah, know. It would, it would look differently. Yeah. Scale of Sanzinia. Or, I, yeah. I like my Sanzinia with skin and scale. Yeah. yeah me animals. too. Yeah, I'm glad we agree on this one. Yeah. People are like, a lot of... <laughs> you're making a huge mistake not breeding scalas. And I'm like, I just like them to look like the animal. Each to their own. Yes. You know? That's fine. If, if you like them, cool, do it. But that, that's the other thing. I think people worry too much about other people's opinions. Well, you have to sell said, them, right? So, like, other people's yeah. opinions kind of matter. Well, you, know, you can give them away, you know? You can feed them to king snakes, whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, but, all your scales, corn snakes. Right? But, <laughs> you know, I think it's funny that people worry about what other people think. You know, yeah, like, that, if somebody I, came to me and said, Warren, I am so disgusted by your green Sanzinia, I think you should... I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. I don't care what you think. I love them. Right? right. So... Who would say yeah. that, though? Be realistic. Oh, I've, had, I've had people tell me that the green Sanzinia are ugly. I'm like, yeah, that's Did cool. you slap them? Yeah, What's wrong like, with yeah. you? Get some each, sense. Each, each to their own, you know? <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, but just things like, yeah, I don't know, the scaleless. If scaleless survived fine um, without a lot of additional um, assistance, then mm -hmm. I would be fine with that. But they are at a real disadvantage because you have to be on top of them continually. And there's other systems that we know, but we know going into ringed pythons and Brazilian rainbows that you have to be careful with humidity. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is, if you get them too humid, you're going to cause scale rot in those things. Look at the uh, scaleless blood pythons, right? So the scaleless blood they're... pythons succumbed with it because they don't shed for three months and they, they, they had scale or skin rot within a couple of days, right? So... Right, and the keratin protects them from yeah. infection. Like, that's the whole point. Right. Now, how does a scaleless animal do with UV? Do you I know don't, that? Probably not that good. <sighs> In a bioactive <laughs> setup? <laughs> uh, I think I broke the internet. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I, I think there's like definitely a time and a place for bioactive and stuff, but I've been like pretty mm. critical. Because you'll see like Dark some frogs. happy pet person pull their cow king out of their bioactive that they haven't seen in four weeks, and it has like a raging skin fungus infection. Because mm -hmm. It's not as clean as they think it is. It's not perfectly clean. I this... watched one of my six-foot emerald tree boas today taking a dump. Shared last night. Took a dump. No cleanup crew in the world is going <laughs> to clean up after that. Either the shed skin or the defecate that it removed, that it produced. Right. So therefore, wh while I keep live plants in my enclosures and all that kind of stuff. There is not a single isopod that will ever be released into that. And, ne and never will I think that a bioactive enclosure can be maintained for an animal like that. Dart frogs, yes. Some lizards, yeah. totally. But, but very few snakes, you know, will, will because of the amount of, you know, urine and defecate they produce, will ever be able to be kept truly in a bioactive enclosure. Mm -hmm. 
So unless you, you have a room size, you know. Have you experimented with rain chambers or any of the other? I've never needed to. I, I actually okay. thought about that today. Um, so I go in. I've, I've got Mist King systems on my um, on most of my arboreal enclosures. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those that are not, I go in and just have a hand pump sprayer that I'll spray maybe two or three times a week. Um, but I don't. I've never needed to because the, the enclosures are big enough. They're pretty active, mm-hmm. um, and they move around. And and uh, I've never had a problem where I've needed to soak an animal to get it to defecate or to put it mm-hmm. in any kind of rain chamber. But I know that for some people they need to just, and that could be just local environmental conditions. If it's a lot drier, like it's a lot drier here at the moment, which is what we expect for the time of year. So I'll just miss them a little bit more, but I, I don't feel the need. I know that some emerald keepers like deliberately specific, before they feed them, they'll take them out and put them in rain chambers. And mm-hmm. I don't, I've never needed to, you know, and all of mine seem to be doing fine, but that's just my setup. Did you, uh, you might not have heard about it, but it was on a podcast recently on the, <laughs> Uh, project herpeticulture ron st pierre was bringing imported emeralds not worming them just so he didn't mm-hmm. crash them too quick and just sticking them outside in florida i've, I've never wormed any of my import emeralds okay or my trinidad's or any of my import corrales i've i've only ever wormed one imported corrales hortolana and that was 20 something years ago because it defecated a tapeworm um but i um i have uh, and I'm sure you can find pictures on my Instagram. I've got, you know, anaconda phase emeralds that have been with me now for three and a half years that are six foot in length, eat adult rats. Um, I, I think whenever you bring them in and you worm them and treat them, as soon as they come in, the stress, the dehydration, and then that just crashes them and you're not going to rec- recover them. I've talked to Ron about it a few times and I agree with what he's doing. He's, he's in a position where he can put them outside, get natural rain. Mm-hmm. Um, dehydration is the biggest killer in my opinion for emerald tree boas and, and likely a cause that, that triggers regurgitation as well you, know, you don't think it's chlamydia? I think that as well, I think it can be I think there's multiple different drivers for it but I think dehydration is going to be a major issue that crashes emeralds, so whenever I get a wild caught emerald, they go into a Rubbermaid container mm-hmm. and they live in that for two years and there's mm-hmm. no substrate or there's just a like a, a, a like paper towel. There's an arboreal water bowls, multiple, mm-hmm. and they're sitting at a temperature of 85 degrees. And I just put them away and leave them alone. I don't stress them. I don't look at them for a month or so in terms of feeding them. Um, and I don't stress about them. I'm more concerned about them getting hydrated. Right. And once I go through, once they go through that, then I find it very easy to to, to keep them. It, it's hard because, like, we obviously don't want to nerf any newly wild caught animals kidneys with no. worming but some mm-hmm. species do need to be wormed because oh absolutely of- right and that can and you can t- you can tell that within a very within a couple of weeks of getting animals in mm-hmm. like i choose not the only reason i've got wild caught emeralds is because there were specific ones that i wanted mm-hmm. you know these anaconda phase where you don't see a lot of them captive so i knew that i had to get those lineages the trinidad trebo is you're not going to get in captivity we've got the only group in right. probably in the world the captivity um so you've got, you've got a gap, but when the animals are doing well, then I also don't want to then turn around and say, well, you've been doing great. You produce multiple litters, but I'm going to worm you now. I don't see the point in that. And also with arboreal animals, whenever they defecate, they can lose, they can shed a lot of parasites that they might have and so on. Um, so I, I don't worry about them, but you, there's going to be some that, that you will need to do that too. Mm-hmm. You'll need to, you, but my, my, my recommendation is get them in and hydrate them first for a week or two, make sure they're really hydrated and then treat them. 
because I think once you've got a dehydrated animal, it's stressed and you just killed a whole bunch of parasites in its body that then have to be broken down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're then increasing your likelihood of sepsis and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's hard <clears throat> because like you can get lung flukes from whatever African imports, just like mm-hmm. snakes can get it. So you, mm-hmm. you don't want to give yourself lung flukes. Like we have African house snake keepers who have that problem. Yeah. So like, yeah, but they also they're probably sp- like kiss, kissing their snakes and stuff like that. Yeah. Well. Let's not kiss our snakes. And then, and then we were talking about, I, I don't know. Remember I was talking to quirky earlier about uh, pendistomes, like the, the native <laughs> yeah, ones yeah. and the non-native yeah. ones. And I'm like, gross, yeah, gross. but <laughs> <That's totally> gross. <laughs> super oh. gross. But I want to know how a human gets those from their snake. I no, in fact, I don't want to know how a human gets those from their snake. Right, because those ones need the intermediate host of a rat. Hmm. You'd have to eat a rat raw. <laughs> yeah, or a rat's well, butthole they've, raw. I don't they've, know. They've lost all their money in the ball python market. <laughs> they can't afford it because they're buying all the rats, and then there's only that's all that's left in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> they resort to terrible things. Uh, well, it's, it's just, it just was funny. Like the stupid, like the Burmese ban in Georgia, they're like, well, you know, the African pentastomes are like out competing ours and killing all of our native snakes. So that's why we're banning berms. And I'm like, no berm keeper is taking their berms poop and giving it to rodents to yeah. infect the rodents to then get loose and then go get it into wild. Mm-hmm. So like, that's not the real reason. It's just because you don't want berms in Georgia. Well, you know, and, there's just been so many bad studies on Burmese pythons by one group that, you know, it, it's, but unfortunately it is what it is, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I agree, you know, that I would, I would love for a study to look at parasite load in captive Burmese pythons. Cause that's, that's your answer, right? If you find that they're not there, then you're, you can right. be pretty much secure. It's just like the genetic study that showed that there's no recent release of Burmese pythons into the Everglades. You know, but yet they still blame kept or, or people releasing their pets. There's right. only one. There's only one area in Florida in the um, north. Well, mid in the Everglades, in the northern part of the Everglades to the west, that has um, animals that appear to have been captive released, and they are labyrinth phase Burmese pythons that you'll catch there. Mm-hmm. They're in a small area, and they're likely from a pet release. But everything else is, you know, that earlier release probably catastrophic release right <clears throat> the other thing about like worried about some releases now contributing is like those animals are like deeply naive about everything yeah mm-hmm. so like they're usually really easy to find again yeah you know they die pretty quickly yeah, yeah. if they're, that releases were common you'd see a lot of color morphs and pattern morphs and we don't mm-hmm. see that right so i and, and I, you would and you would find a lot of color morph and pattern morph babies because they find enough eggs and nests that they right. and they dissect those so they should find color and pattern morph and that's whenever you know because it will be breeding within the population mm-hmm. and passing genes but they don't find that either so they don't want to you know the pet trade is the best way to to kind of cause a lot of media hype so mm-hmm. yeah. you gotta make fun you, of, you have to have a boogeyman otherwise you don't get funding yeah but you look back on the old like postcards from the everglades from the 60s and 70s stuff like that in 80s and they were finding invasive animals there but taking pictures with them yeah it's right. wonderful and then re-release it you know so yeah it's fine all right speaking of parasites uh okay i hate snake mites but i also hate bed bugs so you're my man because around here (laughs) every time i do a reptile show either the snakes are getting uh you know something or i'm getting something yeah no thanks yeah so um 
I, I guess the first thing is the the Phoenix strain of fleas. Like people didn't think you you know about them. Like they're fipronil resistant fleas, and they there was a lot of literature. Like we don't believe you. We just think you're misapplying fipronil. Mm-hmm. And well, then, well, there's fleas. There's a lot of insecticide resistance in fleas. And I was mm-hmm. just I just wrote a review paper. I can send it to you. It's just been published in in current oh, opinions in breaking science. news. Uh, but it's it's about the use of genetic tools to study invasion dynamics and insecticide resistance in indoor urban pests. And I review mm-hmm. bedbug species, German cockroaches, cat fleas, and human lice. And uh, we see resistance in all of those, right? Very widespread. Mm-hmm. Um, fibronil resistance is interesting because it often is partially resistant because if they get highly resistant to fibronil, it often affects the actual health of the insect and they die. They, they can't mm-hmm. survive the three high levels of fibronil resistance. But fibronil resistance te- can be due to two different mechanisms. One is a target site mutation in a GABA receptor. And so it's a nerve cell receptor, a, a channel in a nerve cell that allows for an impulse to be fired, an action potential to be fired. And there's a mutation in it at, a, at a, the 302nd amino acid position. It changes it from an, an Oh, what does it change? It's um, I can't remember. Um, but there's a there's a simple change that occurs, and we see that in German cockroaches, in cat fleas, in head lice, and stuff like that. There, in the same mutation, which is really interesting. Um, and that's widespread. Now, the problem with all these studies on fleas is they tend to be done on lab colonies. Mm-hmm. So these are, you know, trying to find the literature on you know where someone's uh, researchers gone and worked with vets and said right send me examples of fleas because they i'm sure they're seeing fleas on dogs every day mm-hmm. and that would give us a real so i'm actually starting to work with the vet school here at virginia tech to and several friends that are vets to get samples in to really start understanding these target site mutations the other mechanism is detoxify, detoxifying enzymes they can have upregulation of genes mm-hmm. that upregulates the production of enzymes and those enzymes break down or sequester the um, insecticides like fipronil or pyrethrin and pyrethroids that kind of thing um so there's different mechanisms that can drive it but um it's so, so so understanding which is which is difficult without using molecular tools okay but the point is, they can evolve resistance to fipronil. Oh, very rapidly. Right. Yeah. yeah. That bed bugs evolved resistance to to um, DDT within four years. That's the first introduction of DDT. Nineteen forty-eight. It was nineteen fifty-two. They started finding resistant population. So, in like, I always go back to ghosts because it's the only species I've ever worked with that has like a functioning animal science. <laughs> culture around it sorry like i'm sure if i did horses it would be the same thing and it tastes (laughs) (laughs) like we have like anti-helmet regimes like you you don't want to make your barber pole worms resistant to everything in the earth so you do you you rotate you do rotation grazing do we do snake people need to start rotating anti-mite uh medicines so that the mites don't become super mites because we already have rumors so, about super mites <laughs> that's a great question and we we actually just started a project um in the last couple of weeks i just initiated one um zach loafman was talking about um uh, i heard him talking about having issues with mites in in one part of their collection at the mm-hmm. at the school like one rack continually and and that could either be just a, a rack issue, you know, where they're hard to treat, you know, because they're getting into cracks and crevices and so on, or it could be a resistance issue. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard in, of permethrin resistance right. being and already. Back in Raleigh, before I left Raleigh, 
uh, like 2011, I heard of uh, a um, reptile rescue that was having a lot of trouble with mites that they couldn't treat with common pyrethroids and permethrins and so on. Um, so that could suggest resistance, which wouldn't surprise me. Um, people that have large collections that have large populations of mites are going to find an increased likelihood that mutations will arise to any kind of issue, but to insecticide resistance is, is a very common one because there's, when there's more individuals, there's more, especially because they're part of the genetic, mm -hmm. there's more generations, more individuals, more generations, more likelihood of seeing a mutation within a given generation over time. Um, so we, we, I just talked to Zach about that and said, look, we study insecticide resistance evolution extensively. So I've asked him to collect a bunch of the mites that they have. Mm -hmm. um, I'll then, the plan for here is to sequence the genome of those um, and then look at target site mutations. So we can look at specific regions of the genome and those for different uh, resistance associated, target site associated mutations, but also we can maintain them. Theoretically, we should be able to maintain snake mites in the lab using one of our blood feeding systems. Mm -hmm. And we can then do enzyme assays to see if it's enzyme detoxification. So once we get that up and running, it's just proof of concept. Nobody's ever going to fund this work either as well. It's not as if I can go to NSF or USDA and say snake we'll mites. On auction, we'll sell ball pythons. And, um, yeah, that we holds did dairy auctions before. I think people twelve dollars fifty cents that you got from selling thirty. We can still pythons. do it. You can add those ball pythons together. Um, but what we will want in time will be snake mites from people that have them in their collection. So if they contact me in time, once we get the project up and running, if they contact me, I can send them a sampling kit, mm -hmm. and they just need to brush a bunch of the mites uh, into the vial of ethanol and then ship it to me. Ooh. Right, be, they would be dead um, and we can do that there. Know, um, just... It's interesting, you know, in the UK, before I left, people were treating, were preemptively treating their snakes with frontline. They're oh, frontline specifically. Yeah. And um, they were injecting with, um, what was the other one that was, that was used in sheep? Ivermectin. Ivermectin. Yeah. They were frequently injecting their snakes with ivermectin. Um, <sighs> And I'm from so what impressed. I know, it, from what I know, it, it, it seemed to prove pretty effective. The best way not to get snake mites is just through preventative. Don't uh, go to reptile shows. Well, if you do, um, you've got to be really careful about how you then bring animals back in or else how you even bring yourself back into your room. No, dude, I have to go <clears> through my garage. I get naked in my garage. Mm -hmm. I have to like I spray my shoes and anything that can't go in the washer with like DEET. Mm -hmm. And then I, all that goes in the washer. The snakes have to stay in the garage, be deconned. It's kind of the worst part of my oh, yeah. year. I, I love going to reptile shows, but I, I tend to only go to maybe one or two a year. And that yeah. tends to be the, I try to go to, I went to the Tinley October show for the first time in 10 or 11 years because we had a, I'm on the board of US Arc. So we had a board meeting for US Arc there. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and when I lived in Oklahoma, I went to the Arlington show because it gave me a good chance, a good excuse just to go down and see my friend Bob Ashley and a couple of other friends there. Um, and they always gave me free passes to go into it. So it was always fun. But um, I don't go, I, I don't or rarely go to the local shows uh, just because of the likelihood of bringing something nasty back. And I, I don't want any of that. I've never vended a reptile show, you know, so. It's, it's. <sighs> Like I obviously test all my snakes on intake for lots of things. And then mm -hmm. I take care of them to the highest ability I can. 
-hmm. and I retest boas every time they give birth. And then I have to take them to a show next to somebody who does not do that. And Mm -hmm. it's just feels like I've never never tested any animal in my collection. (sighs) Why not? Is it possible? Mine's been been a a largely closed population collection for many, many years. Very rarely do I bring animals in and they go through a very long period of quarantine. And so people talk about quarantine for a month or six weeks. I quarantined for a year to two years. I, I was just mm-hmm. literally responding to a, a person earlier on today that asked me about quarantine and emerald tree boas. And I said, I, I don't keep wild caught with captive bread. They never see right. indefinite other. quarantine. Yeah. And, and if I had to, then it would be a, a, probably about a two year quarantine before I would even consider. Yeah. yeah I, so like the problem is, is like, that's good advice for you but that's not a good advice for like a baby person who has zero animals they don't know which ones to buy so like they sort of have to test and yeah. quarantine to some extent mm-hmm. or buy from collections that are quite old and have not right. yet had problems right. yeah but also whenever they bring them in at least there's some pre- preventative you can do you can spray with there's a variety of different solutions you can use whether it's that next spray from one of those um like was it like lice or whatever Permethrin-based, pyrethroid-based. Keep them on paper towels. That's mm-hmm. white. Don't put them straight straight into that bioactive <laughs> enclosure. Um, so I think you can, and, and just if you can keep them away from your stuff, then do that. Or even put them in an enclosure that's you can kind of partition off from the rest of your stuff. Yeah, I mean, I keep so, like the collection in a different building mm-hmm. than like babies and show stock are in their own separate spot because like if they all died right you know and then realize that quarantine means that once you bring a new animal into quarantine you you could have had an animal in there for 12 months and it's still there and you bring a new animal into it then they all reset right back to zero no yeah that's why everybody needs like three to ten quarantines (laughs) you know like buy a lot of stuff this closet (laughs) that closet yeah. It it's hard. It's hard because you have to buy stuff to start, and you can't buy just one at a time. So like, yeah, I don't no, know. You just gotta just be careful with the bedding you use and the animals you buy and who you buy from and their reputation. But you know, in the end of the day, most people have to get mites. They're gonna be able to treat it. The problem is, the more animals you have, the more difficult it is to treat. But you can still do it. Like, thankfully, I haven't had mites in my collection, and I don't know how many. I don't know, close to a decade or over that. That's good. Um, but it's, um, but they, you know, if you get them, you can, you can generally, if you're paying attention to them, you'll find them pretty quickly and you can get rid of them pretty quickly. Right. Uh, Lisa asked about NextGuard, which is Afloxolaner. Have you ever heard about that? Not sure. I need to, I need to look at the active ingredients and the, um, and the, uh, the target site for those. Is it a, you know, the, the crazy thing about insects is that they can evolve resistance mechanisms that we, like so I, we work a lot on bed bugs not because we like bed bugs but because they're a really interesting study system mm-hmm. they've evolved resistance in multiple different ways their cuticles are thicker or some lines they have thicker cuticles so therefore the, the insecticide does not absorb through it mm-hmm. at the same rate some of them have behavioral aversion where they will stand up on their legs really on their tiptoes basically <laughs> so that their bodies are not in contact with the surface so therefore they're not getting um, in contact with it oh, you'll have those that have t- 
targets like mutations in their DNA that changes the protein channel structure and therefore it no longer binds to it. You'll have those that have this upregulation of detoxifying enzymes that will sequester or break down that toxin before it has an effect. Now, the crazy thing is that like, we're doing a lot of work on German cockroaches and bed bugs um, for low income housing. Mm-hmm. We find that they have, just like ball python morphs, they're stacked on top of each other. Wow! So you'll, have it, you'll have it resistant to fipronil. You'll have it resistant to pyrethrin. Get in the ground floor now of bed bugs. You'll have it. Yeah, you'll have it at the detoxifying enzyme and the target site and behavioral and you know. So it's it's kind of crazy how these um, how these insects evolve mechanisms, how rapidly they evolve mechanisms. All right. So what can I spray on my hotel beds Fire. right now? That <laughs> That'll kill all of them, so I don't bring them home. So over. I, so I don't. I, years ago, whenever I started working on bed bugs, and um, I checked hotel rooms whenever I stayed in them. Just yeah, I do. So I was spending an hour peeling back the mattress and feeling just checking everything. And then, in all the years that I've stayed in lots and lots of hotels, I've never found them. So I what I do now recently. is, oh, that's cool. What oh, I, I'll send you vials. This, where were you? Oklahoma City. Uh, I was been near a reptile show and I didn't see any mites on the snakes, but I woke up Sunday morning and I had one like had a taking bug. a blood meal from like my neck and I crushed it and I'm like, no. A bed bug or a mite? Like a like a bed bug. It was too big. Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. So um yeah. All I do now with hotel rooms is that you know that little metal rack that people ignore that's in the closet? Mm-hmm. I take that out and I put my bag on that there. And that's it. And if there's so not one can't of those crawl into your bag. Yeah. Yeah, and then if I don't, if there's not one of those, I leave my bag in the in the bathroom. I don't leave things lying around the floor. I, and I'll check the bed. I'll check the corners of the mattresses to see if there's any like blood spots because mm-hmm. they you know bed mm-hmm. bugs they'll feed, but they'll defecate very quickly. So you'll see little blood dots on it. And if I see nothing from there, I don't I don't go any further. You know. You don't tear off all the protective sheets and stuff. I also don't stay in a hotel much. You know, if I'm going to, <sighs> you know, if I'm going to Arlington. I'm in the room for like six hours at the most each day, you know, sleeping and because I'm like partying and doing other, I mean, talking to friends, you know. And, uh, <laughs> Do the bed bugs know? like to get into your stuff as adult or is it more eggs getting uh, on adults. you? Uh, well, adults. On your clothes. Yeah. Adults. It's mostly it only adult. takes one. It only takes one pregnant female um, to find a population. <sighs> so we've had papers in 2011, I think we had a paper right that showed that an entire nine story building had been infested by a single pregnant female bed bug. They inbreed. Now, if we talk about inbreeding, they're good. The at average, it. the average relatedness value of bed bugs in populations is about 0.75. So they are past full sieve. They are they're going towards clonal. They're <laughs> genetically, really genetically depauperate. Yeah, they're crazy. They're going to like the next level, like of being inbred. That's you Alabama should, uh... specialty, right there. I don't know if you're on my Facebook. You should, that's, that's one thing I did post on my Facebook yesterday. It was a, a picture of, so we've been, we're, we're working on these um, bad bugs that are like from, from museums. They're about a hundred years old. They're from DDD, pre DDT through to the modern day. And we're sequencing their genomes. Um, but before we do that, we are um, digitizing each of these bad bugs because the museums don't want them destroyed. So we're, we're digitizing them. We're then non-destructively extracting DNA, redigitizing them, and then sending those specimens back to the museums. 
There you go. So we we so part of it we decided to see if they auto fluoresce. Lots of insects auto fluoresce. Lots of arthropods, mm-hmm. just like scorpions, right? You see scorpions, um, people who hold a black light up to them and they shine. That, that's auto fluorescence. So I was curious what bed bugs would do, and it turns out that they have this almost little Tron like. Um, they look like they're in that movie Tron whenever they auto fluoresce because of all the lines. And I stuff. mean, they look so, kind of cute here, but they're yeah, not. Yeah, like cute. the eyes are pretty neat, and the rostrum where they feed, like you see it on that one I on the right. Stab you with that. The, Very yeah, sweet. That's, the, that's the feeding part. So that's, a, that's a female bed bug, and that um, yeah, that, I thought that was really cool the way they auto fluoresce. If you zoom in on the eyes, the utidia and, and the eyes, of their umatidia are, are really really cool. You know, kind still, of yeah, cool. I just wish they wouldn't ruin my life when I do reptile yeah. shows. Just say it. <laughs> Well, there's lots of other things that ruin your life in reptile shows. That's true. You're right. Mites, ball pythons, and um, the general public. Crypto. Oh, fuck. Oh, God, yeah, that whole. Yeah. Ugh. That's why I didn't. I, I was going to get back into hognose snakes because it's not hognose are the first species I ever bred. And I thought They're I was going back into hognose. And then I just, the more I hear, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts anymore just due to time, but I think I was listening to one or two of yours. And, I'm traumatized. Uh, I heard you. No, not at all. I really enjoyed them. Um, oh, it, was, uh, it was uh, hearing a lot about crypto and hog noses. I was just like, oh, God. It's hard. Oh, and it's hard because, like, if, you know, I can, like, tell people to go fecal test. And I'm like, yeah, it's so cool, right? But, like, you yeah. really need to do I'm a gastric wash. Gastric lavage, yeah. And, and that's, that's not, like, not like a cool, convenient, safe way to no. have a pet, right? So it's, no. it kind of sucks. Yeah, I, I don't fancy that there. You know? So it's it. <sighs> And also, well, well, hognose are they're really cool. Um, I was down in uh, in Knoxville. I think you had Harbin, 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 Harbin. Yeah. yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, uh, they're they are awesome. Awesome, awesome people. And uh, they got some really, really nice hognose snakes. And I saw a couple there, and I was like, and I was Did you do it? it? Just get like a baby, fresh out of the egg, so it wouldn't have any. No, I trust them. Risk. Like I think yeah. I, I trust their their animal. But then, then I just see the hognos market going in the same way as the ball python. And it's like, yeah. yeah. Do you think people are like schmorping them too much? Like, no, stacking but I think, people and are, I think a lot of people are just seeing them as money and yes. not, you know, this is like, here's the thing. I like ball pythons and I would happily have a normal ball python because mm-hmm. I think they're cool. Um, I like uh, um, hognose snakes and i'd happily have a normal hognose snake i think some of the albinos are phenomenal i think the cystics look really cool but i just um i just think you know just so many people are just seeing it for dollar signs and i'm like mm-hmm. yeah i'm just not really into that there anymore i like dollar signs i like it producing animals and selling them but i don't i don't like it whenever it's um when I, that's the only reason you have it and whenever it stops making money then everything's gone you know it's all out the window yeah that's how people treat corn snakes every time i go to show they're like yeah i used to breed so many of those when palmettos were one thousand dollars and i don't breed any mm-hmm. now and i'm like you yeah. like want like two for fun and they're like no <laughs> yeah like with ball pythons i i got into ball pythons big way to big way twice and i got out of them the first time just due to moving from mm-hmm. the uk to to the us and i brought one with me i brought a yellow bella with me that i paid um a five figure sum for mm. um yeah and uh stupid <laughs> and uh and i got back into them i don't know seven six seven eight years ago just you a friend wanted some boas so he decided to trade me for like bamboos and what the other ones 
GHIs back whenever they were worth something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I produced all these things and, and I could sell some of them, but I found it very difficult to sell a lot of them because people didn't know me for ball pythons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was into them more because I liked the look of them. Mm-hmm. But also whenever it's not just, well, you just can't have them because you like the look of them. Have one or two if you like the look of them. And I kind of got swept up in it a little bit, but then nobody was buying from me because they don't know me for ball pythons and I don't do shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just saw the whole, that kind of area in the hobby just became something that I wasn't really a big fan of. They're very cutthroat. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of infighting. And I just thought, nah, that's not really me. Like I, I saw something yesterday. I was, I was trawling through YouTube at one in the morning when I should have been in bed. And um, there was some ball python thing on. And, and the person was complaining that they had to wait three and a half years for their ball python to breed whenever they normally breed them at 18 months for females. Mm-hmm. I just thought, yeah, that's not a side of the hobby I really like. That's just the mass production, you know. That's just. It's hard because, like, there are people who I think just like ball pythons. They just like, mm-hmm. and they just, mm-hmm. they want to breed sign because it's fun, but they, they're yeah, not cool. worried about it. But, like, they're crushed because, like, the oversupply hype efficiency part of the market just, like, makes it so they can't sell their, like, five. Oh, there's, 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 like, 45,000 of them on Morph Market right now. Yeah. 45,000 ball pythons. And yeah, that's probably, that's, you know, that's a fraction of what's, a been fraction of what's been produced this year. Yeah. You know, yeah. And people might say, yeah, but that's 2000 or 3000 less than last month. Yeah. But yeah. also in the last month, we haven't really been able to ship. So people aren't advertising, putting things on and oh, that's just crazy numbers. Yeah. It, it is hard. I don't know what to do about it because I have ball pythons mm-hmm. too. And mm-hmm. I, I think like sometimes I'll go to a show and I'll sell ball pythons boas, mm-hmm. corn snakes, and like rare colubrids or something. You know what yeah. sells the most? Ball pythons. The <laughs> no, ball pythons. Nobody wants yeah, corn they, snakes. They think they're the dumbest. The, the, the pyramid scheme is still, you yeah. know, people still think we're, they're the way. Yeah, you know, we're, we're in, you know, it's going to go in waves, you know. Okay. And, most people think know, the boas but, are retics. They don't even know what boas are. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, that's a weird retic. And I'm like... Yikes. It is a weird retick. That's right. Very good. On you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's... yeah no, I, I, as I say, I love ball patterns, but I, I just, I can't imagine me, I would never get back into them to try and breed them again. And uh, if I got them, it would, I would get one as a desk pet because I keep looking at that pattern, this one. It's like five Some, grand or something I got there. But, yes, please get one as a desk pet. I think that sounds very beautiful and like nice instead of like, mm whatever that's why I, my desk pets are currently the hybrid emerald amazon tree boas so it's kind of like they're kind of a cooler desk pet oh yeah right now yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are are they sterile? Like uh we don't know okay you know the, the suggestion of it but we don't really know you know we'll uh we'll see it you know in time i'll try to to pair mine up but uh they are beautiful anyway oh yeah like the one that i the the female that i've got is um she was like orange brown whenever i got her and she's blue kind of blue gray i'm in sign me up it's really cool i'm into blue snakes in general it's yeah if you troll through my instagram you'll find a picture of it but it's really really cool you know it's uh it's it's just shed yesterday again it's just just a cool snake you know they they've got a history of being terrible but this one seems to be doing fine Terrible as in like high mortality. It's a crash. 
Yeah, they crashed, you know, after a couple of years. So I don't even, I can't even remember when I got this one, maybe like three years ago or two years ago, but it is fine and sheds fine and does its stuff, you know, but I need to put together, you know, the way with children, you put that, you know, every, those pictures of every month, you know, as you can mm -hmm. see them aging. I need to do that with this hybrid because then you can see it going from yeah. shitty brown right through orange, through the gray, through the blue. Yeah, do you think that's cool. why uh, GTP keepers have designers is because they're actually like hybrids? And so like they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think they're that's like a big part of it because they didn't know as well. Right. They right. Didn't know that in 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 time it was, um, you know, they were one species. And just like anything, you'd breed what you got to what you got. Because, again, you're you're kind of somewhat tr trying to trust. The, the people that you, that's a Trinidad tree bow, the white one. This one? Um, yeah, that's Trinidad, yeah. I like that. That's kind of cool. This one? Yeah, um, no. Yes. That's a, yeah, that's a hybrid, but that's in a very bad lighting. If you scroll down, you'll see probably better lighting shot. I feel like Amazon tree bows are getting, just in general, a Corallus in general is getting a, I don't know, hype resurgence. They are, you know, I think people seem to be getting into that's it. Yeah, that's there you go. It's, it's, it's not, cool. it's not blue compared to that there. Yeah. So it's kind they of, are cool. Yeah. But it's, I, um, they, they are getting a, they are going through a resurgence. Yeah. Like yeah. I had a wild caught ATBs when I was like mm -hmm. 15 or 16 or something. Yeah. She was They're already awesome. gravid, obviously, when I bought her because <laughs> they mm -hmm. come in that way. So yeah. she was very cool. I just whenever I, my collection died, they died too, right? Yeah, no, I like them. I've, I've got, I've, I've only got a couple of, of Amazons. I've got leopard Amazons, mm -hmm. and uh, I've only got a couple, but I, I really like them. I, I, they're cool, but you know, because I've, I've got so many Ruschenbergeri that I just don't have space for more for the other ones. You know, I've got a whole bunch of emeralds and a thirty Ruschenbergeri or something, and then um, I've got some Grenadensis and I've got Annulatus. So I just don't have space for the portalana, which I like. But, you know. Um, I, I think I skipped some questions, but let's like finish up. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you for being here, though. I really appreciate it. it no, it's happy fun. to be here. Yeah. How is Boas Boas going along? It's going great. So we started that um, a year or so ago, maybe a year and a half ago. It was myself, mm -hmm. Keith McPeak, and Rob Stone. Um, Eric Burke had asked been asking us for a while and um a lot of it was trying to get our time together whenever you got three people that are hosting something oh well you've been through it yourself <laughs> yeah, right you know it's hard it's to try hard. And, it's hard to try yeah. and make time um but we started recording uh, and it became a bit easier in the spring of last year because if i'm here and my wife and kids are in oklahoma and i'm at my apartment mm -hmm. then i can anytime you know i can i can fit that in um whenever we if we all moved here in july it was a bit more difficult to kind of turn around and say, right, I'm away for three hours to record something. And um, it kind of fell by the wayside. So the fact that we didn't have any episodes from July through to December was entirely my fault. And I take full blame for it. But we got back into it in January. And I think we just released another episode this week. It's, well, we record it and then Eric Burke edits it and, and put, puts it out on the, on the Morelia Python radio kind of network. Um, is it still just audio only or is it yeah okay. so we record it we re i don't know if it's recorded just audio like we sit like this here and i can watch everybody you know so mm -hmm. um, but i don't know i don't think it's being put out like that yet but I, I should talk to eric about it you know not that it 
well, maybe, I don't know whether people want to see each other's face as well. <laughs> so most people just play this mm-hmm. like, like a podcast. Like I do pull right. the audio yeah. version too, but yeah. I'm just saying pretty much universally, even though it's easier to edit just audio. Yeah. That yeah. just having it on YouTube, there's like a searchability discoverability that's different. So yeah. it is a good I, um, podcast. I should recommend it to everybody in the audience, but yeah, so we've got, you know, the way we, when, when we started putting it together, the idea was that we didn't just want to have a podcast that was, this is a whatever Boa Sigma, you keep it like this, you breathe it like that. You know, we wanted to have a bit more natural history. We wanted to have a bit more behavior and go through so that, you know, you kind of, you, you went through all different aspects. So um, we recorded, we're recording one next week. So we've got Dennis McNamara coming on mm-hmm. to talk about boas, keeping boas in zoo setups, zoo, zoo environments, you know, mm-hmm. talk about conservation and so on, because they work. Uh, Dennis is actually just done in the, in the Virginia Zoo, which is about three and a half hours from me. Mm-hmm. And I was I was there um, a couple of months ago. At, I was at a pest control technical meeting giving a talk, but I nipped over to the zoo because I was buying some enclosures of Dennis and he gave me a tour of the reptile place. It was really cool. And I thought it'd be cool to have Dennis on because I keep some really nice animals behind the scenes that you don't see. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be cool to have him on. Um, we're going to have Ketzel Dwyer. Ketzel Dwyer is going to talk about some of the boa stuff that they've done, both in Reptilandia and his various trips of collecting. Reptilandia um, looks so good, by the way. I haven't yeah, been there yet. I can't wait to I, go. I need to because um, for a couple of reasons, I need to deliver a parthenogenetic crocodile to them. So last year we had a paper on right. parthenogenesis and crocodiles, you know, which was just, it was crazy. It's the most publicized paper I've ever had, but I've got that sitting in my freezer still. And I want to bring it down there because we want to put a, a little exhibit together, you know, of, of mm-hmm. this kind of phenomenon at, at the at Reptilandia. And, and all was fine. Whenever we started that work, it was pre-COVID um, and I wasn't planning to move to Virginia. Um, so mm-hmm. I thought, right, well, I'll just come down and it's only whatever it is from Tulsa to there, like seven or eight hours, you know, I would mm-hmm. live down. Um, it's a bit more difficult now. The drive is a lot longer. Um, so I'll find a way of getting that to them. But uh, I, I really want to go to see it because um, it looks like a really cool place. Like I, I recently got a, an invite to the Reptilandia in Costa Rica because they have the female crocodile that produce parsons genetically there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Kessels, he's he's he sold Reptilandia in Costa Rica to set up Reptilandia. Oh, I didn't know, I didn't know that. that's cool. Yeah. He should be yeah. fun to talk to. Then he's a cool guy. He's a really cool guy, and he's got well, he's got decades of experience, you know. So he's really a super nice guy. Um, so we're going to have him coming on. Um, um, Scott Boback, who is a guy that did a lot of the early collecting of the island boas, like the mm-hmm. Cocker K, West Lagoon K, Snake K. He's going to be coming on. Um, uh, Graham Reynolds, who's done a lot of work on Chilobothrus. Um, he's a associate professor at UNC Asheville. But he's the guy, the, part of the group that discovered the new boa species a number of years ago, the silver boa or ghost whatever Chilobothrus species. Mm-hmm. So he's going to come on. Um, I've been talking to um, Robert Henderson. He's the Corallus guy that wrote all of the original Corallus books, trying to convince him. And then we'll, we'll be looking for other. We're trying to record one a month. I think for the three of us, that's it makes sense. That at least for now, we do one a month and get it out, at least on that kind of routine. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever I listen to the other kind of podcasts, it's like episode five hundred and thirty-seven. I 
don't have time for that, you know? Yeah, uh, you don't, they don't necessarily need to be like sometimes podcasts aren't really podcasts. Sometimes they're like industry hangout sessions or whatever. So like, yeah. it's okay that they're not, they're sort of fluff material because people need content right. while they clean tubs. And then right. some and that's, podcasts yeah, should that's be more, what I listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Some yeah. should but be rarer because like they're like more curated. Yeah. You know? And I like that, you know, like when you listen to the stuff, at least the most recent stuff with myself and, and Keith and Rob, like Rob stays pretty quiet in the background and we coax him to come in. But he, Keith and I, it's just like shooting the shit. And yet I've never met Keith right. in person. You know, we just talk, we just talk snakes and just, he's just, just an absolutely wonderful person to talk to. He's just a wealth of, of experience, you know? And uh, so we really enjoy that and be, and being able to bring on guests, you know, we had Vin Russo on and one of them, I think was in the last one we did in 2023 was in like June or something like that there. Um, Vin was our guest and it was great talking to Vin because I've known Vin for years. Hmm. Um, but, you know, Keith and I can bounce stuff off each other really well. And it, I've been getting a, a, a massive amount of feedback about the podcast, which has shocked me because um, I didn't think people would really be listening to it. And um, that's why it took a lot of convincing to get us to do it. And, uh, you know, people are talking about sending messages about how well you know, Keith and I kind of go from a script to, and I'm like, well, there isn't really a script, you know, it's, we just kind of shoot the shit, you know? So mm -hmm. it's been a lot of fun, you know, and the day it becomes not fun is the day I will stop responding to their emails. <laughs> Which but is I enjoy fair, doing, right? I, I enjoy doing podcasts because I, it, for me, it's a couple of hours of talking snakes and having fun. You know, I, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook groups and stuff anymore. And I, I don't go to yeah. a lot of shows. But I, I, you know, I've got a hundred and something snakes and I have had for the last 30 years, you know, so. I'm yeah, especially if you don't go to shows. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. People like give podcasts a lot of grief or the things that aren't podcasts are like just YouTube only lives. So they don't even mm -hmm. have like an audio yeah. RSS feed. I'm just like, it's fine. This is like, a okay. Like the human condition is full of many travesties. Too many podcasts yeah. is not one of them. No, because you know, you know, I want to find something to listen to. You know, if right. I'm in the shower in the morning, it's nice having something going on in the background, you know, it's, uh, that I can listen to. And, and I listen to a lot of diverse stuff. I, as I say, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts at the moment due to time, but I really like Zach's... Um, Colubrid, Colubrid. Colubrid, yeah, because I love Colubrids. I just, the only Colubrids I have are some Desert King snakes. Uh, and that's, that's just cool. because, it, and that's because I I caught desert king snakes in um, on um, on uh, Portal Road uh, in um, in Arizona, and I really liked them. I thought they were really cool whenever I saw them. And I've got a friend there who, um, who's a very famous colubrid and, and was a very famous boa breeder, and he was like, "Yeah, I've got some locality ones I'll send you." So um, I've got yeah. some little desert kings, and they're neat. I, I really like them. You know, and I found out there's albinos and anarthristic or exantics and stuff, and I had to resist the um, urge to, to go into those. But um, I, I think calibers are great. I, I think corn snakes are great. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I like I like palmettos. I think they look cool. I don't um, like their eyeballs that fall out. Yeah, but that's a problem with many snakes. You know, whatever. They, yeah, uh, I don't like any eyeballs. There's some there. some <laughs> ocular issue that says I don't want to retain this important. You know. <laughs> um, uh, this important uh, system that yeah I could fall out of my head, but yeah, but yeah, I I, I like them, but then again, I like subox as well, and subox are like but uh, subox are like balanced bulgy eyes. It's like a 
yeah. correctly proportioned to their giant it's head. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas, uh, or like the Malagasy cat-eyed snakes. That's a big yeah. eye. That's eye for yeah. days. You could like yeah, scoot off like, that that's eyeball. Why, like, neonate, neonate corrales because they had really, really big eyes, you know, too big for their head. So I don't like anime, so it's, but it's kind of like that anime person, you yeah. know, the eyeballs are too big for their Or like, their have you seen, I mean, you've seen them, like baby Longicata do the same thing. Oh, yeah. Giant yeah. eyeballs, which we didn't get I into. Did we'll get thing. In, I had we'll a wonderful Longicata and I sold my Longicata to move when I was moving from Ireland? Uh, Raleigh to, no, oh, moving from Raleigh to, uh, to Oklahoma. Do you know what line they I were? Uh, I could find out. I'm one of these people that still has a Hotmail account. And I, could go back. <laughs> I could go back and I, mean, I could find out who sold them to me. But longer cut are all the same line. Right. Right, because they were like this one import that was it was like, yeah, six animals came in kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm. when people talk about the zero line in Europe, that mm-hmm. is derived from Vin's collect. Vin's got zeros and just doesn't advertise them. You know, right. that they're all in the US. That's why people are now popping out the patternless ones, you know, because the, they're all here. So um uh they're really nice, but I, I but there has been line breeding to make the yellow ones and the but right. I, 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 I really like line because I just don't have space for them at the moment. You know, last question. Can, Do you th- have you been on iNaturalist for Longicata? I haven't. I the last I was on iNaturalist whenever I was actually recording the last Boas episode looking at Sanzinia. Mm-hmm. Um because I love Sanzinia. Um but I haven't looked for Longicata. I should do. So it's have you? Yeah, it's really funny that the ones from Ecuador are the ones that look like Longicata, not the ones from, you know, where it would be illegal. So, so like, yeah. Yeah. wink. Um, <laughs> that's another one where I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think things came in very differently as well. Remember that because they were brought in from somewhere doesn't mean that they were collected from somewhere. Right, but place. I think they, like, yeah. illegally floated a bucket of Longicata across that little bay. And then brought it through. Yeah, but uh, look at Bolivia, the recent legally. You know, look at the recent Russian burgrai that came into the country as Trinidad's, and they're not Trinidad's. Wink. <laughs> yeah, they came in as yeah. Nobody can give me paperwork to show me that they were, came from Trinidad or that they're Russian burgrai. So I'm, uh, and I've seen the pictures of those animals in Europe. So they yeah. went into Europe and then came over, and uh, I can guarantee they came in as Hortolanus via Suriname. I would imagine. Right. You know, but uh, it's yeah, fine. Well, it, is it, is. It, it is what it is. Yeah. But it's just funny because you can see zeros in the wild also. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Cool. Like, like patternless looking mm-hmm. things up in trees and stuff. It's just yeah. fun. That would be like a fun topic. Like all deep launch got to dive. Also. Yeah. I like those a lot. I, I should mm-hmm. get them again at some point. I need to, I need to move out some projects, even though I just got into more <laughs> stupid projects. I got to know. <laughs> I fell into Colombian rainbow bows in a stupid oh, way. Oh no! I love I, I like everything. I love them, but yeah, like there's I'm definitely saying. like you have to prioritize, right? Like you're like, if I'm gonna get ten of these, something else got to go, and so yeah. See, that's my, that's been my problem. I haven't done that, you know. I've kind of okay. Just, you just keep adding ten more. Yeah, and I like the diversity. You know, yeah. I don't like the monoculture kind of thing. You know, I like the I like the kind of diversity of what we what I've got here. I just, I'm always you know, I just like. Need, Go ahead. And what, what what I do is I get stuff and then I send stuff to friends. So like my friend that looked after all of my collection prior to that, he had got out of snakes. And I was like, yeah, but and he, and he saw my stuff when I was in Tulsa. And he's like, he thought about getting back into snakes. And I was like, I will send you all of my Darwin carpets. 
and then and then I sent him all of my Wilmers, and then I sent you got him, him right back in all of my Colombian uh, Colombian Imperator. You know, so mm-hmm. I said you just keep them and feed them, and then we will split the offspring. Yeah, I mean that's a good scam, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, my problem is is like. I want to selectively breed so bad because that's how I like started mm-hmm. off with, but like imperator boas, like mm-hmm. how I was trained mm-hmm. mentally that yeah. like, I, I need 40 of them. Yeah. You don't find really the like. phenotypes that I want and then like sell the, what the phenotypes I don't want. You just, just have to be smart. You can do that with single pairings, right? You just need to be smart that hold on to them long enough for a couple of months until they start showing some real development. And then sell the rest, you know, and just keep. It's very difficult to just say, I'm just going to keep one. So last year, whenever I produced these five litters unintentionally, amazingly, most of them have stayed here with me. Uh-oh. Because I'm like, you know, because there were really rare things that don't exist. And I'm like, well, if I sell them, you know. So, um, yeah, it becomes a problem whenever you start holding back 25 animals a year. Whoops. But you just have to be more sensible and say, well, what's realistic, you know? I hope. And then move things out whenever you can that that are being replaced. Yeah. Like with corn snakes, I probably bought, I don't know, 20 or something and they make a million, right? So then you're Mm -hmm. like, we can't keep a million, but it took, you know, 50 or something animals produced to hit one that I thought was like the exemplary selectively bred Mm -hmm. version of that trait. So Mm -hmm. I I literally think I probably needed to breed 50 of them to make one, but then that's the one that'll be yeah. like the main source of the line yeah that's it and then you just sell yeah. the other 49 and give them away <laughs> or give them away to king snakes at this point <laughs> i'm kidding i would never i would do it all the time actually um anyway before that's i get in I trouble <laughs> right my king snake is getting fat i need a more king snakes honestly because and corn snakes make all kinds of like d- dud babies anyway like yeah. dome oh, heads yeah. and shorts yeah, and that's, that's also why I, i've read for tortoises because they love to consume Oh. The odd. I fed like, I fed some stillborn Trinidad Rishenburgeri to my Redfoots not that long ago, and uh, it's kind of funny when you just put a pile of dead babies in the middle of it and they just they go start in and noshing on them. Oh yeah, totally. They love it. They come back an hour later and everything's gone. <laughs> That's you awesome. Know. <laughs> All right, sir. Indeed. Thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, check out Boas 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 and Boa Booth on Instagram, not Facebook. Okay. He doesn't want to go there. And I don't really, I don't really, I rarely respond to friends on Facebook. Okay. Nope. Ignore Facebook. Do you have any ball pythons for sale on Morph Market currently? I've got uh, 317 <laughs> currently in the auction. <laughs> they're all stranger clowns and they're, yeah. Fuck, dude. <laughs> right in the heart. No, I'm here. I'm here for it. And then, but you'll have boa litters this year maybe yeah. for sale? Or you yeah, starting, in, starting the end of May. End of yeah. May, everybody. Thank you. Uh, we did it. Thanks, chat. Yeah. Hopefully, everybody gets some more uh, boas after this. That's my dream. All right. That's the way Let's I, say I agree bye. with that. We did it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> bye, everybody. Take care. Bye. Thank you.